Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So we began the previous episode, the introduction episode, to this new series of the Squid Rugby World Cup retrospective by looking at all the ways in which this World Cup was just like the World Cup coming up next year. And it's amazing that in the like three days since we recorded that episode, even more have sprung <laughs> up because both England and Wales have fired their coaches. It's incredible that, you know how I joked before about Alan Wynne-Jones playing in this World Cup and the next World Cup? Mm. Alan Wynne-Jones has been there for Warren Gatlin's first day as a Wales coach twice. <laughs> and Wayne Pivax and his yep. last. And you know what? There's a fair chance Alan Wynne-Jones is going to see Warren Gatlin's last day as Wales coach about eight times. Sure, sure. We're going to be doing this for the rest of his life. Yeah. We're just going to be... I like, hope he's not. Going I hope to he leave. never he's leaves. He's going to go off to retire. I hope he never leaves. He's going to retire. He's going to leave it in Bryn's hands. And then Bryn is going to ruin everything royally. And he'll be like, God, I thought I could trust my own son. And he'll have to fly back from New Zealand and sort <laughs> it out. Nah, till death do his part. <laughs> so welcome to the Squid Rugby World Cup retrospective. The rugby podcast that is looking at the 2007 Rugby World Cup and finally on to the opening game after all of the bullshit that preluded it in the previous episode. I am Robbie or Squidge or whatever you want to call me and I am also joined by someone else but before we get to that I want to give you a speech about rugby values. Rugby values are the most wonderful thing ever and the greatest force for good in the world ever is amateurism. I will now introduce the other team. The other team? You're Did, a team now. I'm a team. I'm a team. And what would my team name be? Hmm. Maybe Will Owen? Like my really real name? name? Team. Really good name for a team. I think that's what I'm going to call my team. Cool. Good. Welcome to the Will Owen team. And that was a little inside joke for people have watched this game back. We are here to talk about the opening game of the 2007 Rugby World Cup between France, the host nation, and for the third time in a row, Argentina. Argentina had been the opponent for the, the the home team in the opening game of the World Cup, the previous two World Cups. Wow. In 2003, they played Australia. In 1999, they played Wales. They lost both games by putting up a bit of a fight. I was going to say, they must be used to being the whipping boys in front of huge home crowds, m- mustn't they? <laughs> yeah. Also, That's... right, you know how a minute ago you did an inside joke for people who watch this game back? Mm. I watched this game back and didn't get the joke. Oh, well, we'll get on to it. We'll get okay, on to it. cool. Car- carry on. So, yeah, so Argentina coming into this with their proud history of being the Rugby World Cup's kind of almost boys, you know? Yeah. Of being the best team who don't win things. Yeah. In the way that, like, Fiji are always entertaining or Samoa will give you a good physical game. 
unless you're called Wales, in which case they'll beat you, yeah. uh, whether or not there's all of them involved or not. Argentina were always the team that came so close to causing upsets over and over again, as we saw in 87, you know? We saw them on the brink of winning basically every game they played and yet going out in the pool stages there when we covered that World Cup. As we saw in 2011, when they could have beaten England, they gave the All Blacks a pretty good fight, and that Scotland game was so nip and tuck and just like an absolute classic leaving the Amorosino try. Yeah, you do feel for them though, because in the previous two World Cups we've covered, Argentina's opening games have seen them face the two greatest kickers in Rugby World Cup history, being Johnny Wilkinson and Superboot. Yes, and what 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 can you do against that force? No. What that... can you do other than pray that you face David Skreller instead? And then... <laughs> They're both in your draft team and not mine. Mm. You have both of the best kickers. Look, all I'm saying, I don't want to do any spoilers of whether or not come the second draft, I will pick David Skreller, but he certainly didn't strengthen his case in this game. (laughs) I would love it if you did, from a purely competitive point of view. Yeah. So it's a really interesting moment leading into this for Argentine rugby. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're getting straight into this. We're yeah. going yeah, straight. Yeah. Look, we'll, um, we'll get sidetracked later on inevitably. So yeah, but that's the kind of the lead into the, the, the tournament for Argentina was really strong. As you say, they've been the kind of, they've been close to achieving things for a long time and they'd never achieved things on world cup scale, mm. but the year leading into this had been really, really good for Argentina. Okay. 2006, and this is, again, a familiar story. I don't know if you know this. Very, very familiar story that may remind you of something. In 2006, the year before this World Cup, mm-hmm. following Argentina beat England at Twickenham for the first time ever, leading to their coach being sacked. <laughs> okay, okay. This is quite a familiar story. Yeah, yeah. Did um, they also, um, uh, and this is slightly less familiar story, but did they also beat Wales that year? They um, did. They did. They did. They won in the Millennium Stadium. However, that is something that later comes on. So Argentina, yeah, they they had a great year the previous year, won in Twickenham for the first time ever. And then the following year in 2007, because obviously they weren't part of what was then the Tri-Nations, they weren't part of the Rugby Championship yet, that didn't exist yet. They weren't part of a global international tournament. So they just had to try and organise as many fixtures to prepare for this as possible. So they played a full year from like January through to September when the tournament started, of World Cup warm-ups. <laughs> so they just they just organised endless warm-ups in order to make sure they were super, super warm. Here's a, here's a niche question for you, which mm. I, I know your answer to, but I'm going to ask it semi-rhetorically because there will be listeners who may or may not know what I'm about. Do you remember Blackout Rugby? I remember Blackout Rugby. When they introduced the feature where you could just request friendlies with people at any time in the week. Yeah, and yeah. Sometimes you reach a point where you're just so desperate to just have a game where you were just sent out a thousand at once. And then it's like, oh, right, cool. I have a hundred matches this week. <laughs> That's essentially <laughs> what Argentina to... did in the run up to this World Cup. Sure. Yeah. I mean, do you do you want to do you want to explain Blackout Rugby very briefly? So basically, it was like a rugby kind of RPG online. It's still going on. It's still, still yeah, it still on. goes like, on. I get adverts for it all the time. I, I actually still, like have <laughs> I still have my account on there. I still have my account on there. I'm like the fourth worst team in the world because I've not actually like really? picked a team or like done anything in the last like few years. So I sacked all of my good players and all of my mm. managers and everything, like all my coaches, just so eventually, if I end up coming back to it, I've still got my team and all the history, and I have an absolutely stacked bank. 
get I'll have all the money in the world. All the money in the world. But in the virtual world. But yeah, it's this rugby kind of like RPG thing where like manager simulation. Yeah, it? yeah. It it gives you a team and you can sign players and so on. And like they all have stats like your strength and your speed and your handling and kicking and so on. And you pick a team off the basis of that. They're all made up players. But it's like every team in it is real or there's there's bots mm. in there as well but like you would be in a league with like 20 other people who yeah. are real people and so on it was like that was that was a setup now yeah. you're making me want to go back to it as someone that put like far longer into rope union that's... manager free than i should <laughs> the thing is though that's the whole reason why i haven't like let my account run dry i just mm. i have it in like, my favorites tab and i open it once every really? like two months just so my account doesn't die because like i put so much time into that when i was yeah, like, yeah probably yeah. during the 2011 rugby world cup actually i think that yeah. was around the sort of time where i was playing that like obsessively but i don't i haven't cared about it for probably about seven years now but I've mm. just not let my account die. So the the team I named my my team was Killer Cows, and uh, I'm there yes. under the username Woen. So if you see that team that hasn't been active for several years, then that's me. I'm, yeah, so yeah. I'm probably the worst team in Wales. Oh, nice. Yeah, I remember being quite competitive with it up until the point where I realised I was never going to be any good at it. Mm. Like, the point oh, in which yeah. you realise, like, I am insane in, like, yeah. amounts of time with it. There was a point where I was quite good at it, and I realised it was actually quite a big commitment on my time, because I developed, mm. like, two Welsh internationals, and I was like, oh, really? this is amazing. Yeah, and then I was like, but this is this is too much. Like, I can't be, can't be asked with this. So I just gave up. And that's the other thing, is there's, like, t- there was, like, 20,000 players or something, but only one person gets to coach each nation. Yeah. Which is, like, cool. The whole thing going on. Now I'm making making it sound amazing and like I should go back to it, even though I keep getting the adverts of the guy in the suit going, Hoo. So, I don't know, maybe I should. May- or maybe I should just try and get Munster, my Munster team in Rugby Union Manager free, who won the Heineken Cup and then bombed out of the league. So you can get them to transfer what since. universe they're in? That's, gr- that's a great idea. That's yeah. a great idea. Yeah, I'm full of them. I'm full of them. My Munster team has a 39-year-old Lacanio Am who can barely walk. <laughs> he's the slowest player of my team now. He's slower than like John Ryan still a or whoever else, but he's still going. I'm still churning him out. He's still pretty solid. Like he's fallen behind Sammy Arnold in the pecking order, but... I mean, look, it's worked for Ireland with Johnny Sexton, so... Exactly. Exactly. I can do it with Lacanio Arm. So yeah, Argentina and their endless, endless warm-up games. They played a bunch of games against like local teams, and, like uncapped matches and so on. They played five actually capped internationals amongst them. Two against Ireland, both of which they won. One with a last-minute Felipe Contepone drop goal, which the sheer fiddum of that must have driven everyone in the stadium crazy. Especially Felipe Contepone. Absolutely, especially Felipe Contepone. Was it definitely the winning drop goal or the one that put them within one point? <laughs> he has passed form. Yeah, he he accidentally looked at the clock and thought they were winning eighty nil when he saw eighty o o as the scoreboard. It was a new era for Lee on Bowman. So yeah, so they beat Ireland there, and then they beat them pretty comprehensively the following week. So it was a you know good Argentina team. They're building some pedigree. Ireland's and well in that year Six Nations as well just yeah. beforehand. They then went on to beat Italy. They had a 70-point win over Chile, who obviously would never suffer that kind of humiliation nowadays. But this was pre-Rodrigo Fernandez et al. Yeah, yeah. He would have been, what, like seven years old or something? Yeah. But then, just as it was all starting to look great, they lost out of nowhere to Wales. And this was a terrible Welsh team who just Imagine. lost by 60 points to England twice. Imagine losing to that Wales. I mean, we'll figure out whether they're any good as this tournament goes on, I suppose. But Mate. They were not. This is Gareth Jenkins Wales, who had taken the job a year earlier, 
after they sacked the coach for almost no reason. I'll tell you what. So as we record this, it was earlier today I put out kind of the official announcement for this podcast mm. going up, right? The 2007 one. And I foolishly opened it with the question, do you have fond memories of the 2007 Rugby World Cup? With obviously a picture of John Smith lifting the thing. And the response from Welsh fans has been unanimously no. <laughs> I have just literally, as we're recording this, received a response from Josh Gardner saying, I believe this is more colloquially known as the Sean Perry World Cup. So we've got that to look forward to. Oh, I can't wait. So yeah, Argentina heads into this World Cup with a kind of a level of a level of form. You mm. know, like they were doing all right. You know, they'd put seventy on Chile. They'd narrowly lost to Wales in their one throw off. They'd beaten Belgium thirty six eight. Like their their endless tour of just playing anyone and everyone just went on and on and on until eventually they arrived at this World Cup. Their loss to Wales was later put down the fact that they basically played that game during their really like beasting fitness week so they'd done like a really really heavy week of fitness and no ball skills then played wales at the end of it and wales were like mate these lads are playing like they're knackered from the first minute this is easy (laughs) it is probably much easier to come up against an international rugby team when they're coming off the back of a 360 date world tour (laughs) yes exactly it's like, good you know, Bono's cut out for that, but maybe not Ronnie Roncero. Do you want to know a fun fact about that game against Argentina? Yeah. Alan Wynne Jones' first test try. Of course. That's insane. Yep. On his third game against Argentina. That's mental. This was 12 years ago. No, it wasn't even that, was it? 15. This was 15 years ago. <laughs> this was 15 years ago. Everyone else who played in that game otherwise has retired. The thing is, so last, as I say, last week I pointed out, oh yeah, Alan Wynne Jones is still going away. I imagine basically everyone else who played in this tournament is retired. Yeah. Other so than I'm a few kind of teams. tier two players, maybe a couple of Romanians still going because they have like a kind of. No, but it was that, it was the 2007 2008 under 20s team they brought mm. through that went forever and a lot of them are still going that included, you know, the likes of McAvey and of Vlaku yeah. and so on. Did Sirajou go to this I, um... World Cup, maybe? Oh, I think he might have come in just afterwards. Yeah. That's a good shout. We'll get onto this as we go on. Yes. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Looking at that Wales Argentina warm up, Argentina's last warm up game before Mm. this first match, not only is everyone but Alan Wynne Jones retired, right? Quite a number of them have gone on to coach their country and been fired already. (laughs) Like, that's how long ago we're talking. That's insane, isn't it? Name me some of the people who have done that. So Ledesma went on to coach his country and be fired. Geffen Jenkins is about to be fired by his country. <laughs> Stephen, uh, Stephen Jones, Jones could have a similar uh, fate. Yep. Oh, Stephen Jones wasn't playing. It was James Hook and Kerry Sweeney with oh, the most okay. 10. Options. That's inspiring. You've got Kevin Morgan, worked briefly as a fitness coach of Wales. Went Martin Williams, is currently the Welsh team manager. You've got, on the Argentina side, Felipe Contopomi is now their attack coach. You've got Juan Fernandez Lobe is their forwards coach, I think. He's certainly in the coaching yeah, team. Yeah, yeah. You always see him there pumping his hands. Set piece coach, yeah. Yeah, you've got just like any number of like Martin Selzo again has been a scrum coach and left with Ledesma, I think. You've got a great number of players here who are have gone on to coaching careers. Dwayne Peel currently coached at Scarlet. He's probably going to be fired soon. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, probably by the time the board. goes up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just across, Jonathan Thomas coached Worcester, got fired. Mm, wow, that's an insane list of names. That's it. Does feel like that's probably is actually setting a record for most. The highest number of sacked coaches in an international rugby match. Like, I feel like this isn't representative of your mm. average international rugby game, but it's still, it's still impressive. 
Yeah, it's, you know, it's not bad going, is it? It's not bad going at all. So, Argentina, yeah, Argentina headed into this World Cup, not given the biggest chance, you know, no. of like, oh, they were the kind of team you'd go like, oh, they could do some damage, but That's they never it. actually do. You the, weren't expecting it. In the pre-match for this particular game, they have Simon Mannix on, mm. speaking of people who could do, do world tours around World Cups, Mannix, street preachers, get it? Nice. But they have Simon Mannix on comms and he, he describes this game as not a foregone conclusion in terms of France yes. being the favourites to win it. So uh, it's I'm trying to think of an equivalent of these days of... If you had France playing against, let's say... Italy. Yeah, Italy. Granted that this current French team are better than that French team of 2007. But, you know, like in in the preamble, they did say that France are an outside shot of winning the tournament. So... Yeah, oh, there was a big talk of them being the big underdog kind of chance people shout. Yeah, the dark horse. Yeah. So, I mean, I, in order to throw myself back, as we did in the previous episode to the day of the World Cup final or the, the opening game of the World Cup to throw myself back to that kind of feeling. I've been going through the BBC Sport Rugby World Cup blog from 2007. Okay. Which is still online, right? Right. The post from the day of the World Cup by Tom Fordis is mostly about a dog attacking his camper van. And then right at the end says, by the way, I'm going to see France v Argentina this evening. France should win, but it should be a great atmosphere. I, Anywhere, any good suggestion for where I should eat? I don't see why you're, th- this is uh, particularly noteworthy because I think it's more important that we talk about dogs in Rugby World Cup context than the well, games themselves. This is it. The dog did not get onto the pitch, but it did get into Tom Fordyce's camper van. Yeah. Uh, t- does dog in the camper van have the same ring to it? Not really, does not it? Quite. Not really. It's not quite as good. But hey, I'll take it. And I will say that dog is... In contention for man of the match. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say so. nailed on, I think it's but a... in contention. Yeah, it's not not bad. Really scared Tom Fordyce for the, by the sounds of it. Like, properly attacked and like yeah. went right at, oh, his, okay. at the door of his camper van. Okay. It was like quite a scary dog. All right, okay. That's a, com- a very different context to Fabio, which was, yep. of course, we're mirroring that. It's the well, opening game of the team, tournament. don't you? You know, like, both Fabio and, I was going to call him Tony. What Timothy. Was the other dog? Timothy, thank you. Player of the Timothy tournament. The dog. Timothy the dog. Back. They were both backs, you know. Yeah, I yeah. think this dog is very much like a proper hardwood. We had O'Shea Jackson, the dog as well. Yeah, uh, played up front. Do so oh, you yes. think this one is uh, this one is like a hardwood like the back and scary six? Type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's it. He's an enforcer second row, isn't he? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We're slowly building out a dogs team. Yeah. And hey, I've I'm the only person with dogs in my draft team thus far. So Actually, just saying, no, he is, he's now on the table. He's the dog Sebastian Chabal, isn't he? Is he Sebastian the dog? So he's Sebastian the dog. Sebastian the dog, yeah. With an accent over the E. Yeah, yeah, Sebastian the dog. Yes. We. So other thing that happened in the lead up to this game, mm-hmm. they lit a mass, they just got a massive, bloody massive rugby ball and put it on the Eiffel Tower and then <laughs> lit up the official Rugby World Cup logo across France, across the, the Eiffel Tower, like lit it up in the colours and everything. Put the big IRB logo on on the Eiffel <laughs> Tower. Things, it sounds stupid when you say it, but we're going to France next year yeah, and we would yeah. both be excited by that. That will be the greatest thing. Yeah. Like, they didn't do it at Big Ben in 2015, you know? No. 
And like, it was one of the most exciting things in 2019 was walking around and seeing, because I was there quite a while before the World Cup began because yeah. I wanted to have like a basically a holiday in Japan before mm. I did it. And you saw more and more arrive in Tokyo over mm. the two weeks I was there beforehand to the point in which by the day beforehand, it was you couldn't move for rugby stuff all around you. And I'm excited for that to be the case in France next year. Absolutely. And I'm excited to see things like this and suddenly see the Eiffel Tower light up one day out of nowhere. Yeah, I absolutely love that. As I say, like when you put that in words, it's just like, oh, right, why are they doing that? That sounds stupid. But in fact, that kind of thing is what makes the World Cup so special and stand out from any mm. other tournament in in any sport, really. Yeah. Well, so the other interesting thing about that happening mm-hmm. was that there were massive worries. This was going to cause so much electricity, it was going to cause blackouts in Paris. Oh, wow. So there were then calls to boycott other World Cup events on the back of potentially they're going to cause blackouts in Paris by using up all of our electricity to do a giant glowing rugby ball in the sky. It's a real shame that they didn't opt to boycott that stupid opening non-ceremony with Jim Rosenthal, <laughs> isn't it? Why did they have that one near the top of the priorities list to keep going? Other thing that happened around here, like in the lead up, Australia did a team press conference and only one journalist turned up. <laughs> Which, when I interviewed Huomo Ogaminara, he said their first press conference in Japan, only one journalist turned up. And then he was the only guy they talked to after they beat Fiji, when everyone wanted to talk to Good him. man. Which, very different situation when it's Australia doing it. Yeah, yeah. Australia being Any idea that. why? I think it was just they, they ended up putting everything on at once. Okay. Because they kind of left everything until quite last minute. Apparently, basically, the IB arranged this all uh, awfully time in advance, and then panicked at the last minute and put a lot of the kind of press stuff on at the same time like the day beforehand on the Thursday gotcha. before this game was played everyone on wanted night. to speak to Gus Picho instead gotcha yeah so everyone was ending up talking to all the other team because everyone's having their media stuff at the same time mm. and I think it's very much been something they've learned from sure sure it makes sense I suppose that Australia were kind of middling and that they weren't necessarily down as potential winners but it's not like they were the whipping boys either no. They also had a whole thing where this started, and this is something that's been very relevant for the channel, a real fight for copyright infringement on of course. all of this. So they started limiting the number of photographers they got in. They basically limited it to about five agencies worldwide mm-hmm. that are allowed to get in. But then there was a... Actually, I think it was fewer than that. I think it was so basically three allowed in. But the likes of Agency France Presse, Associated Press, Getty Images, all started the strike on covering the opening game because they weren't being given access they weren't being given access to things and the governing body in the World Rugby or the IB as it was at the time were limiting the number of images that the photographers could send out during games, hoping that it, you know, fearing like if people can see photos of the rugby as it's going on, they might not tune in and watch it on the official channels, <laughs> which is obviously we now realise bollocks. But like at the time, I think they're just scared of the internet in general. I guess so. I guess so. Somebody had to have that hunch that the internet would eventually take over the world, right? Great quote from the IOB is that they feared that too many photos going out from photographers during games could constitute video streaming and threaten the TV coverage. Because that's how people consume stuff, right? Thing is, I get it as a concern. Yeah. I do get it. Because that is how it all starts, isn't it? That people get greedy as soon as they have one piece of media. They suddenly want everything, like for free or whatever. So I, I do get it. Yeah, but also they got really pernickety about allowing photographs and stuff to be published of essentially non-pitch-based action. Yeah, so yeah, like England like went to Shabal visit holding a ball. Well, yeah, no, posing. like England went to visit a World War One set of World War One graves in northern France. Okay, of a bunch of you know like fallen British soldiers before they played their opening game against the USA, 
And the only place that was allowed to publish pictures of those were the RFU. Wow. Everyone else was told not to take photos, even though British newspapers did. Because they were like, well, no, we want to focus all of this on the rugby. We don't want to talk about the rest of it. Which, again, like, really doesn't understand what a World Cup is. Because it's a celebration of everything in in rugby and all of that coming together in one place. Yeah. And then celebrating the host nation as well. And that and is it. their like, culture and their team. I find every time a World Cup goes on, I just want to consume as much content about, about it as I yeah, possibly yeah. can. I've just had it with the World Cup that's just happened in 2021 or 2022, whatever. I remember having it in 2019 where like I would watch all of the like Rugby World Cup daily stuff, even if it was rubbish. Mm. I would still watch it. Just Which I thought that show was good. That, it was, that was good. good. It was good, yeah. But there's I don't a lot say of... that because I was involved in some of it. Yeah, like... yeah. But like, there is a lot of stuff like that that isn't as good. And still, you just want to consume it just because World Cup fever is just like such a thing. Yeah. Especially in a sport like rugby where you this is the only time where you get to see it as like a big global event ever in the four-year calendar you never get that otherwise like you always want to try and convince yourself that like a lions tour of six nations is that it just isn't Mm. but in the world cup like people who aren't into rugby know it's happening yeah and you really want to make the most of that and really consume every last drop of content that you can which you know hopefully we can uh, we can be a part of next year (laughs) Absolutely. No, I'm really excited to just get back to that and do it in France, as we're seeing here. So all of that kind of like sat on the World Cup a bit. It was a bit weird in the lead in. And we've talked a bit about Argentina. We should probably talk about France, the host nation. Yes. Who, as we mentioned on the previous episode, were seen as kind of dark horses for the tournament. They were seen as a team who could cause an upset, potentially maybe sort of who knows, you know, might be that they go somewhere, might be they do well in, I don't know, like a quarterfinal or something. Yeah, maybe, but doubt it still. Playing at home in a packed Stade de France is always going to make a bit of a difference. The atmosphere, by the way, at Stade de France is bloody amazing and got yeah, me yeah. so excited to go there next year. Neither yeah. of us have been to Stade de France before, no. have we? So have you, have you been to France before? No, I haven't. No, me I neither. So, no, I've almost gone a few times, but I thought, mm, no, I know the World Cups in 2023, so I want to wait and go for the first time. Now. Yeah, yeah. But that had me so excited because we're both going to the opening ceremony next year. So that is something that got me really excited was just seeing the atmosphere just before the teams came out and so on. Mm. And we'll obviously come on to this as it gets into the game, but I think that the French team were actually slightly overwhelmed by that, the atmosphere. Whereas Argentina had just clearly no pressure on them at all. They were just there to enjoy the occasion. Very strange scenario, but brilliant to watch. So, yeah. And like France, looking at this, named a one of the most interesting World Cup squads. Okay. Because they opted to basically cast aside a lot of the old heads in the squad without calling in the youngsters. So there were four very notable players excluded okay. from that squad they named. One was Olivier Magne. Yeah, okay. I was wondering where he was because I was wondering if he'd like just retired before this. No, but I, I'd assumed this was just this was his era. But like because when I saw names like Fabian Palus and Rafael Imbenez, I thought right, Olivier Magne is kind of like the the third in that trilogy of like legendary yeah, yeah. French forwards. So I expected to see his name, and nope, no, yeah, which was kind of a surprise. So he was left out. The next player left out, Thomas Castagnier. Wow, okay, okay. Well, they had him on the, the punditry, didn't they? This is while he was at Saracens, mm. I presume? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So apparently that was a big factor in it, was the fact that he wasn't playing in France. Sebastian Chabal was? That's it. So, Sebastian Chabal was basically brought in because he was versatile, and France wanted to limit the number of second rows they were picking, supposedly. Okay. I couldn't tell you why, but it meant that Pascal Pape, who had been their captain in the summer... 
was dropped from the squad. What? I don't know what's more surprising, that a young Pascal Pape was made France captain, or the fact that they just went on and dropped him. Those are both equally surprising. Yeah. I mean, it's just incredibly France, isn't it? Yeah. It's incredibly, incredibly France. Pascal Pape. Like, the same Pascal Pape? So the previous year, they toured New Zealand, and Pascal Pape was squad captain. Okay. That in itself is bonkers to me, because I've seen him play. And he was a great player, right? But he was also nuts as a second row, and gave away yeah. about 90 penalties per game. He was kind of like the Luca Bigi of his, of his day, you know, in that he lived on the offside line, and he would like he would sleep there. Yeah, yeah. It was just what he wanted to be, you know? He loved slapping the ball out of scrum half hand. He did! <laughs> God, he for. God, like, God forbid they will ever outlaw pushing somebody in the air in a line-out. God forbid. So there's two more kind of youngsters that were left out of the squad, okay. right? One, Dimitri Yashvili, who had played well in the Six Nations that year, but was dropped in favour of Jean-Baptiste Elisard and Pierre Mignoni, who we will get on to. Mm-hmm. And the other one, right? So Remy Martin and Yannick Nyanga had not played in the Six Nations that year. They'd not been selected. They were put into the squad ahead of a youngster called Thierry Doucetois, who was seen as very, very promising. <laughs> yes, he certainly is promising. Slight spoilers for the game we're about to talk about. What did you think of Remy Martin? Well, no, we'll get on to him as we get into the game. Okay, fair enough. Because, yeah, but, I mean, he's not Doucetois, I, I was about to say, my uh, entire assessment of him is that he is not as good a rugby player as Thierry Doucetois. That is what I will say on Remy Martin. We'll get on to him as, as you go, get into the game. As you say, Dimitri Ashvili is one that surprises me that he was just left out of the squad altogether, actually. Because I did know that he went back to this date and even further back than that. Like, didn't he go to 2003, Ashvili? Um, or he was in and around, I think, maybe French squads around that time. And look, anyone who has listened to the 2011 pod will know my extreme feelings for Dimitri Ashvili as a scrum half. So that, that very much surprises me as well. Yeah. So ahead of Dusatois, France had selected a flanker number eight called Elvis Vermeulen, who yeah. you may remember from playing Claremont, Claremont yeah. and then Breve afterwards, who was quite a regular in the squad at that mm-hmm. point, had been in and out of the squad for like sort of five or six years at this point, had earlier that year scored the winning try in the Six Nations, scored the try against Scotland that meant France won it on points difference ahead of Ireland. Okay. Again, France and Ireland competing for Six Nations. Does that sound memorable anywhere? Mm, Ireland then does. going out in the pool stage. Interesting. So Elvis Vermeulen then picks up an injury in the warm-up game against England, and he is replaced right before the tournament begins with Thierry Doucetois, a youngster with just five caps. Got a bright future, that lad. That's all I'll say. Yeah. Well, I mean, I say youngster. He's been around for quite a while at this point. Like okay. he's been by this point, he's already played quite a lot for Beerits. He's played fifty odd games in the top fourteen. Comparatively inexperienced, but like. 50-odd games in the top 14 is half a season. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, yeah. So, there was a a real kind of interesting squad. There was an yeah. awful lot being talked about. Rafael Ibanez, given the captaincy, alongside Fabian Palouse. They were told to share it, mm. but Ibanez was soon like, no, I'm captain. <laughs> so, he just took it. It makes sense. It makes sense. Those two are probably the standout names as you look at this French team, actually. Should we yeah. look at the 15 for this game, or do you want to talk yeah. about them more first? So, should we talk about the teams? Yeah. Because so, I think that when you look at that, it's a, it's a really good French pack, actually, like on paper. Mm. You look at it like Rafael Imbanez is, you look at that and you go like, oh, he's like the world-class player in that team, uh, in that, yeah, in that yeah. pack, as along with Pelus. Like, 
These are both players, again, that have that reputation. I've not really seen them play before, mm. but I know what kind of players they are. I bo- know that they're both absolute nails, and I'm so excited to see more of them. Yeah. As well as, of course, Serge Betson, who I saw the latter yes. end of his career, and I rated him just supremely high. Like, it's like a, I reckon he's probably like a world-class flanker for such a degree of his career. Mm. And I'm really excited to see him in this World Cup when he was su- supposedly in his prime. So that's a really exciting French pack. As as, and Aaron Audekey, who we've covered in 2011, world-class carrying number eight. Yeah. Also got Peter de Villiers, not that one, mm-hmm. in, who, of course, is now, what, Scotland's scrum coach? Oh, that rings a bell. Yeah. So, I mean, again, renowned, incredibly hard, tough prop, mm. like proper old school scrummaging tight head alongside some of the more fun players. Like their bench has so much hair product on it. <laughs> it does. I literally... Dimitri I... Sarzeski and Sebastian Chabot. Uh, the, the point when Sarzeski comes on screen, I just wrote his name down with a little love heart next to him. He is <laughs> one of the most gorgeous men in this World Cup. Steve Walsh hasn't That's... come up yet, but... The other thing, right? France were coached by Bernard Laporte. Mm-hmm now known for insider trading and all sorts of skullduggery. Yeah. Allegedly. Allegedly. But he was very clear because the Argentines were bloody massive. He wanted to pick the biggest pack he could, which is a big factor in Remy Martin coming in. Okay. So it's Batson staying in. And also in him going for, it was obviously a seven-man bench at the time, but he went for a 5-2 split way before the Springboks were doing it, meaning they had Jean-Baptiste Elisard and Freddy Michelac covering the entire back line between them. Yes, and <laughs> you notice that the two players that don't come on from that bench are Jean-Baptiste Poo and Thierry Doucetois, yep. who maybe they could have done with. But yeah, as you say, but Elisard like, and Michelin have... having all of the responsibility put on them in the second half. But that bench, Chabal, Bonaire, Doucetois, man. Mm. Like, that is terrifying. Impact. It's yeah. terrifying. Michelin is a maverick. At the best of times, yep. safe to say. And it's very clear. And again, we'll come on to this. But Jean-Baptiste Elisard is very much the glacier break in case of emergency. Yes. He's a player well, I'm looking I mean, forward to seeing more of, Elisard. Really high thought of. Because that French backline is insane. It is it's ridiculous. Because... Right, okay. So let's start Every with... Every single player in that backline is incredibly, impossibly talented. Yeah. Every single player in that back line is someone I would not trust in any situation. No, no and especially you wouldn't put any of these two players together. <laughs> no, that, no. Like, you've got, for starters, right, Pierre Mignoni and David Shkreller as halfbacks. The fact that, like, I, so all I've seen of Pierre Mignoni was his latter Toulon career before mm. he retired and then yeah, went into yeah. coaching there. And I could tell from that point he was an impossibly talented player Without a brain. Yes. David Skrella, I don't know what my opinion of him is as a rugby player. Bizarre. Damien Try and Yannick Josion in the centres. Josion is a world-class talent. There is no doubt about that. He's slightly batshit at times, but is an impossibly balanced centre. There is Mm. no doubting that. Damien Try was always seen as the guy to steady the ship at the end of his French career. But seeing him in the slightly younger days, maybe slightly different. Who knows? And then the back three of Christophe Dominici, who is mad as a box of frogs. Yeah. Aurelien Rougerie, who, again, anybody who's listened to me talk about France before from this kind of era knows I love him. He's like a fav- a personal favourite of mine. And mm. Cedric Camel, who was the precursor to Tomas Ramos in that he had all the talent that you could possibly ask for. But as you say, you would not trust him anywhere. But that's the thing about Heymans is like, 
I completely get in terms of temperament, he's a lot like Ramos, but they're very different types of player. In at least Ramos has a good kicking game. Yes. Whereas Haymond had a big boot on him, but he didn't want to use it. No, ever. no. All he wanted to do was run from literally everywhere. And there are a few times during this game where it is not on at all, and he goes for it, and he gets away with it a few times. Like he has a has good runs a few times, but mostly it's. Oh, Cedric, what are you doing? Like he thought that the two positions he could play were winger and frustrated winger rather than fullback. Yes. Like winger who gets the ball slightly less out wide. And like Rougerie, God bless him, wonderful player, brilliant servant to both France and especially Claremont. Love him, fantastic player, mm. never the quickest winger in the world. No, right? No. Really balanced and strong and like good enough finisher that playing him on the wing was still a good idea. But he didn't have the speed of like a Brian Habana. Christoph Dominici at this point, right, was gearing up towards his 36th birthday. Yeah. That leaves you with negative pace on the wings. <laughs> Great player in Dominici, but I could tell he was getting on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised he was still going at this point. Yeah. Like, I knew he played for quite a long time, but I was a bit like, wait, it, it is Dominici. Yeah, yeah, and he's still first choice is kind of the surprising mm. thing. Again, like, I imagine this was far from Dominici's best game. I'd be, I would love to watch him in his prime. Yeah, yeah, which we'll get on to as we get on Absolutely. to the, you know, Absolutely. as we get further into the podcast. Should we look at Argentina? Yes. So, it's a very good Argentina team. It's kind of the classic Argentina team. Like, if you look over the history of Argentine rugby, right, you've got the team that, you know, we covered in the 87 World Cup series, that that was kind of the tail end of that team, one of their their kind of first great team, where they drew with the All Blacks, and they beat a number of kind of the the bigger sides at the time, the IRB nations as they were at the time, the you know, now kind of considered tier one. And then that 87 World Cup was kind of them, like, right at the end as those players start to retire. And Hugo Porter obviously then retired afterwards and came out of retirement about 16 times beyond that. But it was kind of the, the tail end of them. And the, that World Cup probably came about two or three years too late for them to have made a real splash. This World Cup is the best Argentina team since then yeah. in their absolute prime. They are retrospectively known as the best Argentine team of the professional era. Yeah. And on paper, you do, yeah, on paper, you do really see that. First off, that front row of Ronchero, Mm. Ledesma and Celso is just world class. Yeah. And I mean, the front row battle in this game is vintage at the best of times. Yeah, that was the big talking point before the game that everyone kept bringing up is, can France live with Argentina's scrum? Mm. That was the, the thing they brought up time and time again, in the way people do when you see Georgia playing now. You know, they're kind of reduced to being front row when actually there's so much more. Yeah. But, man, what a front row. And, like, ironically in this game, the front row were nowhere near, like, the biggest part of Argentina's game. No. Uh, Which is the fascinating thing about this team. Speaks volumes about what a great team they were. Patricio Albacete, we've covered in 2011, was a fantastic player. One of the best players in this team, one of the most solid, kind of the definition of just a solid set-piece lock who was still good around the park and still hit rucks and so on. And then, yeah, you've got Leguizamon and Lobe in the back row, along with Lucas Ostilia, who I have never heard of. (laughs) Well, you've also got Ignacio Fernandez Lobe, the brother of Juan in the second row. You've got both the both the Fernandez lobbies and the, both the Contopomans mm. together in this team. You haven't got the multiple Agujas, but otherwise you've got the brothers together, which yeah, I like. Indeed. But that's it's, really fun. It's interesting that with Felipe Contopomi, he's usually, he tries best to be a one man team, but there's two Contopomis. How's that going to work? <laughs> you got two man, two teams. Yeah, exactly. I also want to mention mm. so Carlos Ignacio Fernandez Lobe, who was known 
by the nickname El Cuesón. Okay, I've never heard this. Which is Spanish for big cheese. Very nice. Great nickname. Because, because right, Ignacio, like nacho, nacho, cheese, big cheese. That's a really smart, like, multilingual pun. And I'm a big yes. fan of it. El Cuesón. El Cuesón. I suppose that's French, isn't it? I suppose, would that be given to him when he was at Cast or Bordeaux Maybe. or somewhere? But yeah, but both Fernandez. if it was French. Oh, yeah, yeah, so it'd be Spanish, yeah, so... Look at me with my GCSE French. Yes. <laughs> Look at me and my failed Spanish GCSE. <laughs> yeah, up yours. The main talking point for me, I think, looking at this Argentine team, mm. again, seeing this team play an 80-minute performance for the first time ever, the halfbacks. Yes. Augustin Pichot and Juan Martin Hernandez. So, Gus Pichot is a player who is so well-regarded in Argentina. Mm for I mean largely for his playing career and what he did in that but of course since then he has gone on to really champion Argentine rugby and basically you know head up the the world rugby board and mm. be one of the big dogs dog on the pitch one of the big dogs in uh, in world rugby like ever since then this was the amazing thing was seeing him not in trainers oh but he's always had style hasn't he watching him <laughs> do the toss with Rafael Imbanez mm. was such such a contrast because you're just thinking like if this was the world cup of handsome captains argentina are one nil up <laughs> of course they are of course they are and this was picho at the tail end of his career mm. as well like he was you know he won his first cap for argentina in 1995 blimey like yeah. he'd been going for a long time he's vintage picho i loved watching him here his body language never changes that's the thing I love about him. Like he, mm. you can you can tell. Like yeah, the administrator Pichot is very much yeah has the same energy as the, as the scrum half Pichot. Yes, and that I really like that. Also, him lingering around like pre-match in his like long football shorts was great. And it's just they're like he always has to be different. Do you want to know a great fact about Augustin Pichot that I didn't know until today? Did he warm up in a suit? No, he didn't. Right, but Gus Pichot in Argentina after his rugby career, and actually towards the tail end of his rugby career, became quite well known for doing voiceover narrations what? on documentaries. Really? In the way of like, so he did in 2007, like, so the, the documentary was released in English in 2007, and for the Argentine version, which was released in 2008, of a an Earth documentary, which was packa- repackaged up, it was like a David Attenborough thing for BBC, okay. and then they repackaged it as a movie, as they sometimes do, like... I remember the Planet Earth one was like repackaged with Robert Redford doing the narration. And for the Argentine version, it he was replaced with Gus Picho, who had a brief career of about three years where he was a voiceover guy. And he did that towards the end of his rugby career before getting onto the Argentine Rugby Union, the UAR's board in 2009. That was what he did for a few years after retiring you what, of his career. You look at his three jobs, right? Scrum off, voiceover narrator, administrator on the board... All of those things have one thing in common. He, he cannot <laughs> yeah. shut up. That is what we've learned about Augustin Pichot. He cannot stop talking. Like, he he went down to the job centre when he was hanging up his boots, and then they got an earful of him, and they were just like, right, okay, yeah, here's a load of jobs that require you to just natter someone's ear off. Just piss off and do it. And he's like, right, sound. Do you want another great fact about Augustin Pichot? Right, go on then, give me another one. He is the shortest time between a player retiring from playing for their country and being inducted into the IB Hall of Fame. Wow. What year was he inducted? 2011. That's a World Cup cycle. He played his last game for Argentina in 2008. That's insane. That's that's great for him. 
Did he induct himself? Years. This is the thing, right? <laughs> he, by that point, was at least on the UAR's board, so he could have put himself forward. <laughs> and much as I love Gus, he probably did. <laughs> God bless him. The other key thing about the halfbacks that you mentioned yeah. is that they were playing together at the time at Stade Francais. Of course, right? of course. And so they had built a partnership there at Stade really well, really developed. Hernandez had been player of the match in the final of the top 14 that year okay. when Stad had won it, which also made Picho, who was Stad's captain at the time, the first ever non-French captain to win the top 14 to lift the Interesting, trophy. interesting. That bodes very well for a World Cup, doesn't it? Having those yeah. two halfbacks with Pichot as captain. Having done it in the Stade de France earlier that year. Yeah, yeah. And Hernandez is known throughout his career to... To play three positions, you know, he he played mm. um, centre and fullback as well. Might play a little bit on the wing as well. But at this period, he was seen as one of the best tens in the world. And he had yeah. really built that form where he was just unbreakable. Well, he kind of converted from playing fullback the previous year. Mm. And he played a lot for Stad that kind of year. And it was in this year he kind of transitioned into the ten shirt. Yeah. Slowly. Until this World Cup where it all kind of like really exploded and kicked off yeah, for him. Yeah, hell of a player. Like proper like baller uh, at his peak. I The last thing I've written down about this Argentina team is I looked at it and saw a name in there. And I just wrote down Om Todeschini. Because I look at Federico Todeschini, right? And I've never seen him play a full game. But I have never gathered that a player is so boring just by watching highlights of them before <laughs> as, yes. as him. Like I am absolutely certain... That he was playing and he was Benjamin Utrecht's idol growing up. I've never been so <laughs> sure of something. Oh, there is a direct line between yeah. those two players. They are the same guy. Yeah, you are spot on. I'm there. gutted that Todd Cheney didn't get on. I really want to see him play. <laughs> yeah, the the other thing in this Argentine backline, like the one really big call in this team, is them putting young winger Horatio Aguja mm. in. You know, obviously on his first handful of caps, I think he had like four or five coming into this game. When he's sixth cap, in for ahead of Arambaru and head of Sonyosa, who comes off the bench. But that was kind of the big call, was Horatio, young Horatio Aguja, one of the two players based in Argentina at the time in that squad. He then goes on to, you know, win a contract in France immediately afterwards. Later goes on to play for Leicester, plays very well, kind of becomes a bit of a hero everywhere he goes. Massive, massive kind of, yeah, like, club favourite everywhere. He? Yeah. yeah, fantastic player, Agushi. We've obviously talked about him in 2011 but before, but... Becomes a big theme for this team, mm. right? If you look at this Argentine team, it was something that came up in commentary again and again if you watch this game back. Nine of the 15 players in that team play in the top 14, mm-hmm. plus you've got three in the Premiership, and then just two in Argentina, and 17 of their 30 players in their squad were based in France. Like, there's an awful lot of familiarity with this country, the host nation, with the team they're playing against, with the stadium they're playing in even. Like, everything is very familiar for Argentina. They speak French, they're very comfortable there, by and large. It was really, really easy. It was only, you know, as I said, five players based in England, seven based in Argentina, one based in Ireland, which was Felipe Contepomi at Leinster. Otherwise, all based in France. Like, majority yeah. of their squad based in the top 14. All in high-performance environments. Yeah, yeah. Which absolutely. made a difference at this point when, relatively speaking, we're st- st- the professional era is still quite young. I know we're 10 years yeah. in, but there's a lot still to be found out speaking about this in 2022. Mm. Yeah, that's a really important point, I think. A lot of these players playing together, as you say, in France yeah. as well. It makes a difference. Well, and Albacete playing at Toulouse, isn't he? Playing with a lot of the French players who are starting in this game, even. Yeah, yeah. And even you look at the players based in England, the starting team, right? Two of them are the Fernandez Lobes, who are both at sale with Sebastian Chabal. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of crossover here. A lot of crossover. The last thing I have written down before we get to like the actual like kind of pretty much stuff. Mm. This era of rugby, there is yes. nobody more fitting that can kick off the first game of the tournament than the one and only Tony Spreadbury. Oh, I know. Referee. I know. I was delighted to see him crop up as the referee before the game. And I was like, we get to see Spreaders again. We get to see Spreaders He's just back. strutting his stuff, doing his thing. <laughs> because he, he'd retired before 2011. Mm. And he, to me, he is just the definition of referees in this era of rugby. Yeah, he was the, absolutely. You know, what he was the Dave Pearson of his day. <laughs> He's got like absolutely massive teacher who is not supposed to be taking this class but will take it seriously and not learn any of the kids names yeah, it does. but they all love him anyway like yeah, they don't yeah, care yeah. they don't care that he doesn't care about them it's just like oh yeah but he's enough of a sound lad that he can get away with it i love yeah. tony spreadbury i think he's absolutely vintage i think he never crosses the line of like trying too hard to come up with one-liners mm. and stuff like the amount of times when he like gives the players advice like don't be silly as they're coming around the side of the ruck. There was one point where Ignacio Fernandez Lobe like pushes somebody in a line out and he penalizes him, points him out and just says, Silly <laughs> That's my that's one of my favourite parts in the game. I love that. He also really hates advantage. He does. Like Tony Spreadbury hates advantage with a passion. I think like, it's because he has to run further. Advantage, yeah. He will instantly call it over. <laughs> Like, there, there is basically, like, at one point, and again, we'll get onto this, like, it's a really big moment in the game, but, like, France have a penalty, like, five metres out from the line. They do about four or five pick-and-goes, and he calls that advantage over. Really weird moment, that. Really weird moment. And quite yeah. a kind of big moment in the game as well. There's a great bit as well where someone knocks it on and someone hoofs it, and he calls advantage, advantage over, yeah. like, in the same breath. <laughs> I got that as well, yeah. Advantage is over now. <laughs> yeah, love spreaders. Delighted to see his face cropping up and more of him in this World Cup, please. Yep. Of course, so we reach a point, the teams are running out, right? We've seen the toss with spreaders and so on, and the teams run out. And for some godforsaken reason, they wait until the teams are already on the field before somebody starts doing a speech about wanking over pigeons. (laughs) That's exactly the joke I was making at the start. I had to stop introducing the teams and stop you doing the anthem in order to have, we have two different speeches about rugby values. <laughs> During the second one, Picho leaves the line, the line up with them all yes! around each other to start warming start up again. To just start doing stretches. It was brilliant. Uh, by the way, the first, the first of those two speeches was in French. So I don't know what yeah, it was actually yeah. about, but oh, my, no, my I... GCC French isn't that amazing, but I assume it was just about wanking over pigeons. Yeah. So I, I wrote down As the 1987 one was, which is not, by the way, for anyone who hasn't heard the opening ceremony of our 1987 episode, genuinely there, their opening ceremony speech was about wanking over pigeons. Sorry, carry it on. It was a decision that they made yeah. in 1987. There was not much to do in New Zealand at that time. <laughs> so he begins by saying that, yes, I'm here to welcome us all to the rugby... I'm paraphrasing. To the Rugby World Cup. It's a wonderful to be here to see all of you, France and Argentina. We are here for the next six weeks to celebrate the values of rugby. Okay. He then lists three the values to rugby. Values of rugby. Oh, yes. Can you take a guess at what they are? Okay. Uh, sportsmanship. One of them you will not get. Okay. No. R- respect. No, but okay. So respect is on there. Sportsmanship, you're not far off. He's chosen a different word. Okay. Go on. Solidarity. So, yeah, okay. Same So thing. like, same sort of idea, okay. right? The other one. The other one, dogs. Not dogs. Aww. You are closer than you would think 
Uh, Cats. <laughs> the musical. You are... Oh, I can't believe you just got it. <laughs> Songs, music, bangers. Theatre. Theatre? That's how I got it. He said, he said theatre is one of the great values of rugby. I didn't think to go. I'd go three for three on a quiz about rugby values in French, but theatre. Theatre. So I presume, you know, the, the drama and the spectacle of it all and <laughs> all of that. But I like to think it is about the French team forgetting their lines yeah. here. <laughs> That's very presumptuous that they had any in the first place. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, there's a few players who look like they had done some, but that's a different story. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so they do that. They move on to the second speech, at which point someone else comes out and talks about rugby values. <laughs> they cut up to Bill Beaumont in the stands, who has stood up for the speech like it's an anthem, <laughs> with his arms down his side like a pencil, looking like a prawn in line to vote. <laughs> Bill Beaumont, little knowing that scrum off on the pitch, would one day... One day, almost beat him in an election by just talking about video games and how <laughs> radical it is when you get high score on Space Invaders. <laughs> All while wearing trainers. <laughs> and then we get, finally, unless you've got anything to add on the, the pre-match festivities. No, no. I mean, during the second speech on Rugby Values, the crowd does start booing. <laughs> <laughs> I assume that's something to do with the fact that that second one was in English. Yeah, I mean, it could just be that they hate rugby values. Because, yeah. hey, booing is against the greatest force for good in the world, amateurism. <laughs> it certainly is. It certainly is. Yeah, so we get to the anthems. And tell you what, you know who's going to win from those anthems straight away. <laughs> Argentina with an absolute worldie. All, like, I went through this a few times. I'm pretty sure all 22 Argentina players are crying. Yeah, I thought this as well. I feel like, the thing is, right, so... We see the camera does that thing where it pans across the entire Argentine team. What they don't show you is that just behind the camera, they're screening the premiere of Paddington 2. Because <laughs> that is the only explanation for why they're all in floods of tears. <laughs> the coach called them in and was like, all right, lads, sit down, sit down, sit down. Theater. I want to do something slightly different, slightly different to the usual pre-match talk. You know, it's a very special day. It's a very, very special occasion for all of us. So I'm going to show us all It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> exactly. But it's the fact that it's all like in unison. Like as soon as yeah, it starts, yeah. everyone's like, sound, I know what to do now. But that's it. Like, <laughs> the, the, the Argentine anthem has that really long lead in. It has mm. like a 45, 50 second lead in of just instrumental before you get yeah, the lyrics. Which is great. And by the time the first word happens, all of them are bawling. Yep. Like bawling with tears. And even the ones that aren't like... Like, Ronnie Roncero doesn't burst until about one line into the actual lyrics. Yeah. But, like, they're all right on the edge, even if they, you know, don't start singing itself yet. It's incredible. Like, it's properly, as you say, up there with, like, the 33 Welsh anthem, with one of the best anthems I've ever seen. It's phenomenal. And it's an away team at the opening game of a World Cup, when it should be, you know, when you see the French anthem, and it's just sort of nothing. They just sort of mumble away through yeah. it. And France have one of the best anthems in the Rugby World and Cup. Fr- I, as I think that France did look nervous pre-match. Oh, massive. I've seen some amazing Argentine anthems over the years. That's right up mm. there. Yeah, I think it's one of the best anthem deliveries I have seen in rugby. The, the, what I love about the Argentine anthem is it feels properly like a crowd participation event. That yes. With the, the build-up with the... Da, 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 they have the crowd sing that bit for the players mm. which uh, it's brilliant it feels it makes kind of the players and the fans all feel so connected and that's what separates it from so many other anthems this is it like i've got click on tenders for man of the match to play in this game right 
but I considered the Argentine national anthem as a man of the match <laughs> contender because I think it has an absolute blinder and pumps Argentina up to a degree that France cannot live with minute one through and eight. It's, it, the definition of controlled aggression is very much how yes. Argentina start this game. As I say, France look quite overawed, which is really surprising to say of the team who weren't just crying a minute before kickoff. Yeah, yeah. And so we eventually do get to the game itself. Mm. We have had enough wanking over pigeons. Yeah. And things line up, right? Argentina kick off, France clear it. And I had a moment of having watched so many games back for the pod that of just going, oh my God, it was a good kick. And now it's a set piece that the team throwing in actually wins. It's bizarre. Like, I was not used to that after 1987. Yeah, like, I think it's going to be a thing for every first episode of this podcast that we ever mm. do, where I'm going to have to spend the first game just acclimatising to what rugby was like in that era. Yeah, yeah. And there were points, right, a lot of points throughout this game, where I would look at it and go, oh, the attack's really terrible, or something like that. And the thing is, it's just like, it's not necessarily terrible. It's just not as refined as it is these days, you know, because mm. uh, they've had less time to look at it. But I'd kind of get distracted by that rather than, you know, what's actually necessarily going on on the field. But it's that weird thing that because 1987 feels like a different sport, it feels yeah. completely different yeah. to modern rugby. Whereas this, you can see completely what the sport is becoming. Mm. It just isn't there yet, yes. right? In the way, like, you know, if Definitely. we watch, if in 20 years' time, when we watch the 2019 World Cup back, it will not look there yeah. yet either. We, we it's will just it's the way the thing changes. Look at it in 2019 and go, this is just a poorer version of the game we're watching today. Yeah. And that's that's what it is here. But And like, I, I really enjoyed this game, first and foremost. Like, I, yeah, I, yeah. I want to add that. Me too. I, fantastic game. There was a point where I kind of thought to myself jokingly, like, oh, was 87 so bad because so many people were dropping the ball still? But actually, you know what it was? Because you're not getting a point... Like, Every time someone gets the ball on the wing, they cut inside and take the contact because they can be asked. And the you know, you sort of shy away from a tackle and people oh, yeah. can spin off both hands. Sure, like the level of handling isn't what it is today at international level, but like the skill level is still fantastic, like the level of talent on show. There's another key difference, right? Mm. Which is that one of the things I found really interesting when we watched 87 back is the sheer number of scrum resets and time it takes to get the ball into a scrum yeah. and standing around waiting for scrum to take place, which everyone complains about as a new thing that's come in the last 10 years. And it's not. Like, no. it's been there the whole time, no. right? That was not there in this game, so which says to me... That's where people the get answer, it from. People go, oh, isn't it, you know, isn't it interesting that, you know, we need to do something with the laws or whatever. No, what we need to do is just put Tony Spreadbury in charge of every <laughs> single game. Yeah. Because, like, when Spreaders is there, no one is hanging around. And, like, the last 10 minutes of this game are basically entirely Argentina lying on the ground trying to milk the, and, like, eat time of the clock for, like, 10 straight to minutes. To a hilarious degree. But, yeah. But Spreaders is still like, no, we're doing the scrum now. Yeah. If you're lying on the floor, France are going to win it easily. Yeah, yeah. I will rig the game if you don't get through this scrum, you knobhead. <laughs> and when he does the, the call, he goes, like... Crouch Church Sporting Game. Yeah, he's so quick. He does not hang about <laughs> like, at all. He basically there is no space. He, he basically, them. yeah, just gets them all and just goes engage. Get on with it. Like yeah. I've not got time to say the other three. It's like how they change it from engage to set because it's one syllable. Yeah. For Tony Spreadbury, the entire routine was one syllable. <laughs> like he got it down. It's, the thing is, there's an interesting point. I know we're kind of joking here. This might sound make me sound like a bit of a pretentious asshole saying this, but you know how you get like the sort of people who comment on Facebook on rugby pages, like 
with that kind of pretentious, oh yeah, I know about rugby uh, and the rest of mm. you don't kind of thing. The worst one is people that do it on YouTube and make yeah, videos yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, But you know what I mean? Like the people who comment on the WRU's Facebook yeah, page yeah, yeah. and so on and England rugby's and say like, oh, kicking's boring, kicking's ruining the game and stuff. What I feel like, what they know about is this era of rugby. That's the one yes. that they understand well. Yeah. Again, that makes me sound like an arsehole. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know more about this than you. I don't know more about this than anybody else. But it's just like knowing how to differentiate those two things is quite important. But like, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in this game where you think like, oh, you know what? I could have as good a conversation about this game as anybody who watches rugby as I could with you, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, probably higher because I am an idiot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But... You know, good point. Yeah. So why don't you just go and do this with some, one of your new mates from down the pub, right. William? Yeah, I will if that's do. even your real name. That's my team name. But yeah, it's something I adapted to very quickly. Is actually that even though, as you say, when you see attack set up and it is just four backs in succession lined up very far apart, very obvious what they're going to do, you are still in an era where kicking is of largely the same quality it mm, is nowadays. Yes. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Which changes the game entirely. Yeah. Argentina's kicking game is exceptional. Good God, it's amazing. I mean, it is the reason why they win this game. Yeah. Like, yeah. undoubtedly. And you see it from the start. So the very first thing that happens in this game is there is a ball that goes out. Argentina steals the line out. And Pichot does a fantastic, mm. like, steal and chip over the top and really puts Heymans into a corner. And you think, like, oh, okay, like... Having the vision to do it's that is... Fantastic. Brilliant. Like, tap tackle on him. Like, yeah. catching him. Oh. And then applying so much pressure it on it. It looks him. delicious in slow motion, doesn't it? We also haven't talked about Hedrick Se- Cedric- Hedrick Seyman. <laughs> we haven't talked about Cedric... We haven't... We should, if I can manage to get the words out, talk about Cedric Haymon's hair. Okay. Hit me. Cedric Haymon's, who I remember of his, like, 2010 when he scored that winning try against the All Blacks, 2011 World Cup era haircut where it was kind of, like, quite slick... He came into this World Cup with just a very random bob that he had dyed the back of exclusively. Yes. <laughs> like, it's not just like he had frosted tips. It's like he literally no. he went up to the barber and said, Hiya, mate. You know that the last four hairs at the top of here? Can you specifically dye them blonde? What's the worst bit of my hair I could make blonde? <laughs> okay, cool. Let's do that. Yeah. It's, it's like he saw, it's like, it's like he it's saw like vanilla ice, ice then slipped it back. Yeah, it's like if Vanilla Rice was on Loose Women. That's the haircut he'd have. <laughs> Very much so. Except he's not Vanilla Rice on, on Loose Women. He's playing fullback no. for France. <laughs> Which actually, now put them side by side, aren't two entirely different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you go from the spectrum of Vanilla Rice to Loose Women, the exact midpoint is French fullback. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like you pretty much land slap bang in the middle of Melvin Jaminet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost exactly. <laughs> so, bizarre thing, right, after this. So they clear it back to Argentina, France do. And then Juan Martin Hernandez, like one minute into the game, goes, you know what will be banner? I might just try a left foot drop goal from 40 metres. And he goes, fine. Like, it's n- it's not like near it's the post. It's a good strike, but it's not. But yeah, yeah, to say he's off his wrong foot and he's not really prepared for it. I didn't it. realise he's off his wrong yeah, foot. Yeah, like he hasn't... Re- this is, he conceptualised this idea about three seconds before kicking yeah, it, yeah. you know. With all of that considered, it's not the worst attempt in the world. And Cedric Haymon's caused the mark from a drop kick. Now, can you do that? No, not anymore. Because I'm pretty sure you can't. Or yeah. at least not without Could spreaders. You oh, you've got to take it very quickly, but you can do it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, 
I think I think we might have to get used to spreaders rules to go alongside Steve <laughs> rules in this tournament. But novelty. He then clears it back, right? Argentina then set up in the same position. And he just goes back and goes for it again. <laughs> like, by the third minute, he's attempted two drop goals. And the, the thing you've noticed about Hernandez is, I think he goes for about 901 drop goal attempts in this game. Very much like the Martin Rodriguez penalty attempts of 2007. The, the actual stat, he misses five drop goals. Uh, and the best thing about oh, no, that... He misses four and Contepomi misses one. Yes. Coletto misses one as well, I think. Does he? Yes. But the best thing about those drop goals is they, they exponentially get worse and worse as time goes on. The attempt. Because his second one just goes horribly. It's just shit. It barely yeah. leaves the floor. And what I just, well, it gets charged down to be Oh, okay. I didn't notice that. What I have written down is just, what the fuck, Hernandez? I love it. <laughs> because but I he's do identified think his tactics. That's and he's it. gone, this is how we're getting through it. We're going to Yanni De Beer the hell out And, of and I think it's something that teams should lean into more. And sure, yeah, you'll yeah. miss a load of them. You probably do want to start getting a couple of them. That's probably, That's probably one piece idea. of advice I would give, is maybe get a couple of drop goals if you're going to attempt so many. But I would like to see more teams do that, even in the modern day, mm. of just leaning into drop goals as a tactic. Like, in a game like this, there is only one try scored in the entire game, right? Mm. France realistically don't look like scoring a try in the whole game. <laughs> so no, they do not. You can enter the 22 three times and come away with nine points, right? Because well, the likelihood of getting five or seven is... Slim. Picho's post-match interview, he says, we are not the most skillful team. We're not the biggest. We're not the smallest. We come here to win. No. He says, we are not the biggest team. We're not the most physical team. We're not the most skillful team. We don't have the best players of any team in the world. He says, like, our players are not as good as France's players, Mm. but we have more heart. And the quickest way to convert heart into points is three points. You know, he's taking drop goals and penalties when they're available whenever you're in position yeah if you've got one good kicker you can get away with that and argentina have two yeah they have hernandez and they have contapomi in both like, good options contapomi as well yeah with temperament as well the pair of them yes like yeah. they both have and a little bit of hair there. on contapomi as well little little bit of hair settling isn't like, it hanging on there mm. just about a little bit of hair so yeah so they are just going well this is how we get through this game boys you know and straight after the second missed drop goal France tried to run it back out, and good old Leggy Salmon himself, Leguizamon, gets over the ball, wins a brilliant turnover. France kicked the penalty. Contepomi spots it perfectly, and they're 3-0 up, which is yeah. no less than they deserve. Like, they yeah. are completely on Argentina, top. of course. Yeah, 3-0 up. Sorry, yeah. There's a, what I like about as well from that penalty that Leguizamon wins, there are like 1987 levels of penalties given away in that breakdown. It's one of those that like, you'll see on Twitter do the rounds. For, for starters, that tackle is made because Picho legs somebody up. Does then, he? yeah. Oh, um, then Leguizamon like, falls off his feet, but France try and like get rid of him when he tries to like, go back j- jackling after going like beyond the ball. And France just tries to get rid of him by like going around his neck, flying two-footed in like from three miles in the air, and just doing absolute neck, coming in the side, coming in the back, just absolutely anything. And eventually spreading is just like yeah i think that the score on penalties there is like three four so france you've given away more argentina get get the penalty yeah it's fair enough yeah and like it is a very clear holding on penalty as well going yeah. on like it's really good body shape by the Gizamon in a way that like this is just coming into the game as a kind of a, a feature that people look for that mm. kind of jackal turnover penalty yeah yeah it's a moment of drama it's as well yeah exactly it's a thing like people go like oh that's fantastic by that player rather than just being a cynical offence yes and it's excellent by Leguizamon yes it, it, he wins the penalty rather than they concede it yes 
We then have another moment because France implode inevitably <laughs> shortly afterwards, repeatedly. You they somehow end up with a penalty in there. Yeah, Skrada kicks one, which, yeah. believe me, you can't take for granted. Oh, no, I tell you what, it is a moment of proper stupidity by Lobby. It is like the sort of moment that you would get properly bollocked for in the team review, where after a scrum, the French pack carries in, I think so, and Ordeke takes it in. Lobe just falls over the floor, having made the tackle, just picks up the ball while he's lying <laughs> on the floor and presents it back. Like, proper dumb, you're never getting away with that, especially not with spreaders stood over you. He gives him like a schooly, like, you're getting a detention if you do that once <laughs> more, and sends him on his way. Yeah, the three all. Yeah which does not feel fair. No. France have not been in it at all. No. Especially, right, shortly after this, we have classic one-man team Contopomi come out. Lovely half-break he makes, isn't it? Mm. Kind of dummies past one man and then thinks, well, I can't just take this in and delivers this beautiful flick out of the back of his oh, right hand to Lucas don't see it coming at all on the wing. No, no, not at all. And Borges really reads it well. And he's like, I've mm. played with Contopomi before. He's doing something flash here. Like he is not taking this ball in. And it's fantastic. And Argentina really worked their way upfield from there. And they look organised yeah. and get up into sort of the French 22. Shortly after this, they do a really interesting thing. Okay. Well, they have Ledesma steps in at ninth. And Picho steps in at 10 mm. and runs a very modern kind of style. Like you've got a three-man pod playing off, off the 10, 10. Yes. who just selects one of the three and sends it down to them. It's like a real precursor to the very common structure used nowadays. Argentina don't only do it about twice during the game, but them doing that, especially with the nine playing at 10. Mm. Really interesting, like moment of innovation. for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially to say like in this game, there are so many like isolated carriers Mm. that happen and so having that as an organized like oh no we've got three players here and whichever one isn't carrying is hitting the ruck yeah like that's quite an advanced kind of strategy at this stage and argentina when they did it it really really worked so they made this half break right they get up to the 22 augustin pichot goes for a proper richard harding of a play and picks the ball up and just randomly chips it into the french players hands when they had all of the momentum Mm. And it drove me insane because it's like, no, Gus, you're the, you're one of the good guys, man. Like, why are you doing that? Why are you doing the Richard Harding shit? Thankfully, he's already... He pressed the wrong button in his video game. Yeah, he must have done. He must have done. Thank God he's already done the looking really dapper in the pre-match toss. Otherwise, he would be straight in dick of the day. Oh, mate, you want to talk dick of the day? No, because we're both picking the same guy. Are we, though? Well, it's around this period that it all starts to become very clear what's wrong. Because, like, <laughs> the thing the commentator says, that opening matches in World Cups are always renowned as being dull, dour, boring affairs. But this one has had moments of mild excitement. <laughs> Great way to advertise your product, lads. Very strange commentator, this. Yeah. I'm guessing he's usually a football commentator. Yeah. Because, I don't know, there were just various things where... When, like, a penalty would go on, he would always ask Simon Mannix on co-coms, like, oh, yeah, what was that, you know? And he was quite vague with kind of the way he spoke about things. And there were so many other players he just didn't know. Like, there was mm. Lobber playing for Argentina. Yes. There was Horacio, who was on the wing for Argentina, not Agusia. Yeah. And Aurelion playing on the wing for France, not knowing that was their first names. I think he called him Julien Michelac? V- Vincent Michelac came off the bench Vincent for Michelac. France. And it was like, come on, mate, like, that's quite a famous name there i don't know who it is i tried looking it up but Mm. yeah but hey like uh, who am i to judge you know these things happen like i've definitely on this podcast before like said players names wrong so absolutely and we're not live knowing how many people we're broadcasting to Uh, like it's really difficult job which i don't envy so fair enough all of this was a really 
a roundabout way of saying France looked bloody terrible. <laughs> yeah, they did. France looked atrocious. And Argentina are playing very well, very controlled rugby. They are sending almost everything into the sky in that first 20 minutes. And they continue a lot of that throughout the game. But they've got a very clear game plan and they're sticking to it really calmly. And France are just absolute chaos. Like Mm. nothing is working. Do you know who France's attack coach was in this tournament? I don't know. I'm not I'm not sure myself, but what I have gone and found is this um this audio clip of one of the sessions that he ran prior to this game. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to play that now. Oh, we uh le le boys uh, uh I speak in English now, but what what we are going to do is every time we are tackled, we offload even if we get smashed. Even if we going backwards, even if it's a shit offload, we do it. Okay, understood. Uh, we, 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 we. That is shortly before Sebastian Chabot came in, stormed in, and shouted, "We are in France. We speak French now." Okay, and slammed him down the toilet. Which is why their attack did not evolve from that point yeah. at all. Important piece of context on that genuine piece of audio I picked up from the French training camp the day before this game. Why did they offload literally every single time they got the ball? Every single ball. Every and ball. Whether or not there was someone close. The, like a lot of throwing the ball at the ground as well. Yeah. The, the commentators picked up about 20 minutes in. Like, okay, this is probably their biggest problem. Because they have... They were dominating Argentina at the scrum, which was the really surprising thing. Like, they were, they were marching forward at the scrum and not getting penalties out of it, but they turned over a couple of balls and they looked really, really good up front. And both their forwards and their backs, whenever they got the ball, would just run into contact. And if they didn't win the collision, they would just throw it. Mm. And the amount of times they get either intercepted or there's kind of that thing where like two players tussle for the ball and one of them kind of slaps yeah, it back. Yeah. Or oh, someone drops Pichu it. Pichu makes a fantastic intercept. Oh, it's great, isn't in, it? Like really well read, right? But the thing is, we'll get onto this. There's a few intercepts Argentina take that are not well read. No. You know, that are just kind of like France just chucking it yeah. to anyone and it happening to be someone in the light it's, blue shirt. It's like watching like an under nines game where you've just taught mm. offloading in the week and you're like, oh, I don't really mind it's not going to hand because I think it's cool that they're trying to do it and they're learning from it. But it's like, no, these are international players touted to potentially win the World Cup. Why are they doing it yeah. all the time? Like they've got some good ball. They've got great talented players and they just have no patience whatsoever to just take one phase and then give it to them. Real self-destruction. Yeah, yeah. I will say, you said that's France's biggest problem. I would argue it's second. Okay, yes. France's biggest problem for me is their halfbacks. He's wearing number 10, yes. Yeah. So we we have, at 9 and 10, Pierre Mignoni and David Skrella. Yeah. Right? David Skrella, who, of course, Rhiannon gave Dick of the Day on his first appearance in the 2011 podcast. Indeed. In a game in which he played about four minutes, and he deserved it. Yeah. This game, he plays an hour, and he deserves it. Yeah. And yet, right, I think matched all the way, pushed all the way for that dick of the day, like, worst performance <laughs> Talk about driving standards. By his scrum half, Pierre Mignoni, who, I mean, like, so we've seen this happen a bunch of times, right? We've seen, like, there's something else Gaines talked about recently. We've seen Finn Russell recently like last year down to kind of red ball on the sideline before mm, going on yeah. we've seen kelsey, kelsey jones, jones. In the Premier 15s, yeah you know wales women's player she will often drink two or three red balls on the sideline <laughs> yeah, she had a mostly empty kind of red ball 20 minutes into the game at the yeah. Premier 15s of the week like 
Ellis Genge has said recently that a lot of players in Test Rugby now are so jacked up on caffeine mm. that they're just bursting and constantly bouncing. And like that's actually led to a lot of penalties being given mm. away. This is like an approach that's really, really taken off. I've in the last tried few this years before and, like, and I don't get it. I'm not a fan mm. of it. I've tried like energy drink well, other, programs before. Like, the other fear off. is that you'll crash like around an hour in or something, mm. you know, that's the fear, right? Anyway. Adrenaline's a strong drug though. Yeah. This hadn't yet caught on. However, we did see a very primary thing that might have given the idea over. Okay. Because it seemed like Pierre Mignoni, before coming onto the pitch, before running out, he downed a lemon and ginger tea and then took three sleeping tablets. Because he seemed to be playing entirely asleep. <laughs> I've rarely seen someone pay less attention on a rugby pitch than he was. Like, he didn't seem to know what was going on. Like, his, his only, the only thing he seemed to weigh up when passing was just like, oh, he'd look up and he'd go, oh, which of my players is the most isolated? I'll pass to them. <laughs> it did seem like he was trying to get through that, that first half just trying to not piss himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you could see him sort of drift. Like, at one point, he's about to put the ball into the scrum, and he kind of takes that little, like, step backwards you do when you try to keep, when you, like, wake up. Yes. Like, I would not be surprised if he got, like, 40 winks during that first half. He was trying to get micro sleep, but turn away from spreaders so he didn't get told off for falling asleep in class. Like, those Wall Street people that sleep, like, they sleep in, like, two minute bursts during the yeah, day yeah. he was doing it while the ball was in play <laughs> it's really interesting actually you bring up what you just brought up because so there's a point in the second half it's 55 minutes in to be precise where David Skrella misses a penalty right between the posts yes. right and when he missed that I was fucking fuming right like I was absolutely fuming and I didn't want to message you about the game because we've got a podcast to, to do on it. You know, we're going to discuss it later in the day. So instead, I messaged Rhiannon Garth-Jones with a video <laughs> of him missing that penalty and just captioned it, David Skrella. And her advice to me was, might I suggest simply forgetting he exists? <laughs> Which I think is excellent advice. And she says, I've managed this neat trick repeatedly. And I just messaged her because I I wanted to punch something just because I was so frustrated about that man's inability to kick a rugby ball. And it was just constant. There was a point where he takes the ball in his own 22 in the first half and he goes for a dummy kick and you go like, oh, dummy kicks are in fashion because people were falling for them all the time. Like, defences were not quite up to a level where they prepared for dummy kicks. Like, this was when James Hook was playing international rugby. Duh. And he goes for that dummy kick, right? Gets around his man and then goes, right, I'm going to absolutely lever this downfield. And Gus Pichu just grabs his leg and he drops the ball because he doesn't have a leg to kick it onto. It's not even Gus Pichu. No. It's Martin Selzo. Oh my the God. The tight head prop. That's not forgivable. Like, how are you being done like that and shown up by a tight head prop? That's, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Like, when you looked at the team, right, when you looked at their bench and they went for this 5-2 split, mm. and you thought, oh, it's bold of them to put two halfbacks on the bench when Michelak can play 9 and 10. Mm. And Delisard. Know, they can both play And Delisard can play 9 and 10, yeah. And then you see who's starting and go, no, you've got to be able to bring both of <laughs> yeah, them off. exactly. <laughs> like... <laughs> Forget break glass in case of emergency. We have two panes of glass, two windows that we have to just shatter as soon as we possibly can. 16th minute, Damien Try goes off with so much blood pouring down his head. It's like a fountain, like like a water feature in a town centre <laughs> of just like like a fountain of blood pouring down his face. Like it's, it is a very good, like I saw the Timothy Chalamet like cannibal movie today, right? 
Damien Try's face is the bloodiest thing I've seen today. <laughs> it is like full of full of just like blood and gore and whatever. He goes off and you can just see Bernard the Port going, get him back on because Michelac is on now and I need to be able to pull my halfbacks off. Like, I can't let me not Shepherds crook them. They can't play 80. I will put anybody else on. Look, you need to come back on if you don't want John Baptiste Poo playing nine for us later in the game. <laughs> Deuce Swap could have done it though. Yeah, easily. Do you want to hear a joke? Please. Going to the shop. Want any Argentine fullbacks picking up? Corletto. There we go. There's a joke. There's a joke. And now, adverts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. It would be funny if we had an ad break there. Cool. <laughs> One more Corletto, save it for me. Mate, Corletto has a great game. Bloody great player. I was meaning to touch on this when we did the teams beforehand. He is a player who I've been so excited to watch because I just know that I would hold him in the same regard to how I hold, like, Matisse Labelle these days. Players like that. I'm I'm on record as just absolutely adoring. Santiago Cordero, there's another one. There's a certain breed of back three player who I just love to watch and I've just known he's going to be one of them. You know me. You know that I have a small number of weaknesses. Mm-hmm. The, one of them... <laughs> well, you have a large number of weaknesses. But... One of them is how much I hate Ireland. One of them is bees, because I love them bees. so much. <laughs> I, I panicked. My third weakness is Argentine fullbacks. I have a real thing for Argentine fullbacks. Like, you look at so many of... If I were to name you a 30-man squad of my favourite players, 30-man or woman squad of my favourite players... Yeah. I, pretty much any point in my rugby watching history there will be an argentine fullback mm. in there somewhere yeah like i i love them all and when we went through the previous world cup you know you look at how into sebastian salva i got like and, i oh, and the world um, cup before that a morosino i know Ooh, I'm getting this <gasps> oh man we've got tuchel to come oh. you know i've got so many argentine fullbacks that like buffelli at the minute i think is oh. the best player in the world like yep. on form and i know he's playing wing mostly but no one cares yeah he counts like Corletto feels like he's just like he's being because I never he's got class. much chance to see him play live. Yeah, you know, that's when, the thing. Kid, we kind of and again, like he's played his career. We both will have watched so many highlights packages of him and gone. Mm. He looks like a, such an undercelebrated player, and yet he is just known like for this World Cup and being one of the most solid players in this World Cup. So that was one of the things I was most excited to see about this Argentine team was him specifically, and yeah. God, he lives up to the hype I have built around him. Yes. I mean, he was also part of that Stade Francais team that won the of course he was. championship. They had, you know, the kind of spine of the team. 
9, 10, 15, all Argentine, all started in this game, also at Stade de France, all play in Paris, you know, where this game was taking place. Like, really locally based side who will know each other incredibly well. And you saw that in how they kicked and how they knew what each other were going to do, how they chased. There's a brilliant point around the sort of 20, 30 minute mark, somewhere in that ballpark, where Coletto hangs a bomb of his own, regathers it just absolutely perfectly, results in them getting into the 22 and Ronnie Roncero slotting in at 10. Yeah. Like, what more can you want from a passage? Yeah, it's delightful. And he does that a couple of times, like, in important moments of the game as well. Mm. Like, as he's doing he's doing it to, like, stunt France, who are, like, not get on top in a kicking battle, but floke a couple of good kicks, you know? Yeah, yeah. And he hangs it into space and just wins it back himself and just suddenly puts Argentina on the attack. And he's such an important player in this team. Again, just fascinating to see, as they play more and more big games as this tournament goes on, the growing role that he's going to have in this backline, as we said before, is a brilliant backline that Argentina yeah. field. He's also got the really rare thing that I love in a rugby player, not seen since Kim Mike Davis, of being named after two different characters from Better Call Thor. His full name is Ignacio Saul Coletto. Oh, wow. Which, for anyone that's a Better Call Saul fan, that is two different of the, the kind of four major characters in that show. I rate it. I rate it. But yes, Ignacio Coletto, fantastic player. Mm. Playing behind Juan Martin Hernandez, who was mm. already kicking the leather off this ball, he did like this brilliant spiral bomb which bounced out on the five metre line, which was yes. just horny. There was another brilliant kick he did later on where he goes aerial and Amon just drops it under no pressure. But, well, no pressure from Argentines. He has pressure on him, put on him by Dominici. And he misses another couple of drop goals. But yeah, he did that kick twice during this game it might be three times even mm, yeah it's a few. kick that i love that doesn't really happen very much anymore like no one really does it where they are stood essentially just off the ruck on one side of the touchline about the five meter line 50 meter line rather and he will kick it sort of 30 meters to the opposite corner and just pin it in behind the opposition winger like they kind of like sweep a kick across the face yeah yeah and they do it from sort of 30 odd meters out and land it five meters out and he does it from both touchlines, both sides, repeatedly. And it keeps France under so much pressure because they are such a bubbling mess, especially their halfbacks, that they are struggling to clear the ball on a pretty regular basis. Clearly... And it gets Argentina two different scrum fives over yeah, the game. Yeah, like the French back three clearly hadn't like trained for this and like yeah. expected that they were going to go for this kind of kick repeatedly. I said, you've also got quite a slow back three. Yeah. You, know, you can't expect Heyman to do it all. Exactly, exactly. And the fact that they were doing multiple ones on the bounce in that kind of way that like, Springboks and Andre Pollard do these days, mm. it's quite revolutionary from Argentina that they, they do that as a tactic and really manipulate I mean, the back three back and forth. You say you're revolutionary, like this wasn't the era of Ronan O'Gara and Dan Parks. Very fair point, very fair point. But, of course, you talk about this era of rugby. There was a point where we were briefly just transported back to 1987 because they went for one of those kicks and Amon kind of like fumbled around and then just about fielded it, right? And he's under a load of pressure. But where Argentina make their mistake is they pile all of their pressure just onto Amon. And they're yes. like, right, okay, you're going to be the only guy we mark. So we're going to absolutely murder you if you don't pass the ball. And Amon thinks, hmm, you know what? Got a plan. I'm going to pass the ball. And so he does. <laughs> he passes the ball and it's like, whoa, we're about to open up a world of space here. But there was a fatal error in his plan. And you know what that fatal error was? He gives it to David Scrawler. Even worse. He gives it to Pierre Mignoni. Ah, oh, I don't want him two chance. And Pierre Mignoni, now in his own goal area, with no pressure on him, just walks into touch. Oh, it's that bit. It's that moment. Yep. I... He, yep. He 
was infuriating me already. And then you see that. And I don't know if he just like realized he'd left his eye mask for his like 40 winks he's having on the sideline and went to pick it up. But, oh, he had no reason to do that. Not at all. He was under no real pressure. And he was on his correct foot to like kick it out. So he had time. Very bizarre. From that scrum, they end up playing it out and get penalised and Felipe kicks it. It's 9-3. Also, observation, Felipe Contemomi ages a lot between here and 2011. It's just the last of his hair goes. Like he's clinging on to the last bit's hair. The hair like clearly takes a few years off him. Yeah. But yeah, like, he then just gives up on it. I've heard Mohan, Natasha, and the English scrum off, for, or mm. one of the English scrum halves didn't actually go to the ball cup. But she said like she wears her scrunchie because she feels like it like halves her age on the rugby field. Like <laughs> it's the same thing for Felipe Contepomi. If he has hair, it halves his age on the yeah. rugby field. My follow up note then just says, why is this shit sorted out, fellas? Skrella once again can't kick. Like, I don't think we're quite doing justice to just how bad as a unit France are. Like, they have one moment of bursting into life and looking wonderful, where they kind of string three offloads together on the halfway line and run the distance, get into the 22, then obviously drop it on the second phase. Yeah. <laughs> but they look they look like they could be everything we want them to be for a moment, and then it all falls apart, and it all just disappears, and it isn't any good anymore. Like, they scramble and fall apart so easily. And a lot of it is just the way in which Argentina really commits the rucks. Mm. Like, Argentina throw so many bodies at the rucks so hard. And, like, there's a great bit where Mignoni tries to clear out himself and he just walks into the ruck at four heights. It's like he's just more like strolling up to his friends, like, "Yeah, what's up? What's up, mon dudes?" And then I think it's like Legisamon just comes from miles away, just like you do realize you've just walked into like the wilderness. You know, you've just walked <laughs> into the one area where, regardless of where you had the ball, I'm allowed to absolutely fucking cream you, and that he does. It's hilarious. It's like he's walking into the sea. Like it has that kind of like slight trepidatious, like, oh, it's a bit nippy here, yeah. but I'll be fine. As he just walks in completely upright. Like once you're within what, that one meter zone of the ruck, anybody's allowed to eat you. Yes, especially Juan Manuel Aguizamon. Needs no second invitation. I believe it was him. And he's one of the most likely candidates. Had a great game here, by the way, Aguizamon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seemed a very different player to the one I kind of like know him to be because mm. like I think from was like in the number eight mold. Yes, yeah, I think from is like a, a big jackal threat and good ball carrier and so on. But like, mm. he's quite quick here and he's like yeah. he's trimmed clearly. He's he looks younger from, clearly. Yeah, younger than his runny days, his rugby night in New York. Indeed, days. it's during the era when he famously dropped that ball over the trial line for London Irish. Of course. That was probably about this time. Mm, of course. When he was a far quicker and played number eight far more yeah. for moving very much into kind of the seven position mm. as he went on into, you know, 2011 and beyond. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of France kind of capitulating and so on. So there's a point where Hernandez hangs up a high ball. And I tell you what, Hernandez hangs up about 100 kicks in this game and about... 60 of them are good. I, would... I think higher than that. I think he but mostly kicks very the well. The thing is, the ones he... that are good are bloody excellent, right? Yes. And then there's a handful that are just terrible, right? Mm. And then there's one that falls I mean, somewhere in between the two. There's one that goes backwards. Yes. Yeah. Right. Like, there's one that lands further back towards his own line yeah. than he kicked it. But the thing is, because he's doing it so often, law of averages does dictate that, like, that means there's going to be so many brilliant kicks in this game, mm. which there are. And like that is, as I say, why they go on to win it. But there's one that is quite average, right? And that's the one that the commentators point out as like, oh, that's not very good, lol. <laughs> and Damien Try takes it brilliantly. 
and then immediately makes a break. And you think like, oh, okay, like France haven't looked like causing any kind of mm. havoc. Yes, so they had the one passage up until there, and that's it. Yeah, Try makes this fantastic break and really cleverly kind of draws about three men around him and then just lobs a pass like way before contact to mm. Remy Martin, who was in quite a lot of space and had a few men outside him. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he's got like a five-man overlap outside him. Yeah, yeah. And their backs as well. You know, like there's a point in the second half where France have a massive overlap and it's entirely the forwards and it becomes like like some sort of comedy show of who can fall over the fastest. Yes. Like, this isn't that. And it's, it's long before we had, like, you know, we were used to forwards running in the wide channels and having kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah. ...those kind of, like, uh, specific, specialised skill sets, you know? Mm-hmm. It's incredibly free stooges, that passage. Yeah. And like Dominici ends up in the middle of it and he's just like, one of you do something. Yes. I'll do it all myself. <laughs> yeah. And he just, he, he catches the ball in like a three meter corridor. He's like, right, I've got to prove I'm fast now, have I? And like, obviously both of the Argentina players out there go, well, it's just him. He's going to do it all himself. Yeah. Like, we haven't got to watch <laughs> anyone easy else. To read. Go on then. I dare you. I dare you to pass it like, to Olivier Milou outside you. I was going to say, Tell him to run isn't going the whole way, is he? Yeah. yeah. It's very Peter funny. Peter de Villiers is not fancying getting up to the halfway line, never mind no, the whole way. Not at all. So this one, Martin has, yeah, as you say, like five backs all outside him. Mm. But the thing he fails to account for is that one of those backs stood outside him. It's Horatio Aguja. Because <laughs> that's the thing, right? Aguja from his wing does the classic thing that I, when I've played on the wing, have done an awful lot. Where you come in and basically just, like, you know how you're supposed to scare off a bear by just making yourself as big as possible, yeah, right? Yeah. Aguja comes in to do that and he starts basically, he throws his arms up to start waving them, you know, it's like, you can't get the ball past me, you're going to have to throw like some ridiculous looping ball to get over me. You know, just to block the path because he knows how big the overlap is, that he's got no real chance of defending it. And instead, Martin doesn't even try to throw it over him, he just passes straight <laughs> to Aguja. You got me. Like, <laughs> Aguja isn't going for the interception. No. It just ends up in his hands. Yeah, yeah. He's he's visibly surprised when he catches that ball. Yeah. And yeah, Martin just kind of goes, oh no, you defended my impossible plan. <laughs> hey, I guess here's the ball for your troubles. And Aguja, yeah, like slightly shocked in his tracks, goes like five metres before he offloads it to, I think it's Momo Contopomi. Yeah. And then runs a bit further and Ignacio Coletto runs oh, a superb support line. Brilliant, like arcing outside, timed perfectly. From fullback as well. A million miles out. Like he's come from trying to cover an overlap to taking that ball inside about five seconds. The way he loops and arcs round to get on the outside, knowing exactly where he's going. Superb reading of the game. Exactly where the cover's going to be. Yeah. Knowing where his opposite number, Heyman, is going to be in order to loop around and be able to beat him to the corner. Absolutely. It's an absolutely brilliant support line. Yeah. And it goes the whole way and finishes. The first try of Rugby World Cup 2007. Yes. Scored by who else but Ignacio Corletto, our boy. I just have written in my notes next to this, under Corletto in all caps, Remy Martin, dumb. <laughs> yes. I also use the word dumb. I, d- I refer to mm. it as a dumb pass. I believe that actually the halftime score is 17-9. So there's a, a little exchange of penalties well, for yeah. halftime. Contopomi knocks one over from his own half. I don't oh, know. He does. Where. He does. Yeah. Of course, there's a, the other point for half time is there's one point which I think is quite a kind of not momentum swinger, but kind of like mm. moment of asserting dominance of Argentina just going like, no, you're not getting any momentum here. 
where Heymon goes for like this wipers clearance kick and Ledesma comes from miles away to charge him down on like the mm. superb kick chase and just like the work rate of the whole Argentinian pack with like the five minutes before half time as though they're all ready to get subbed off because they're blowing that hard at half time is just brilliant mm. and they put yeah, Dominici absolutely. under heaps of pressure I believe they get a penalty off the back of it yeah it just there's a real classic period just the end of that half of France just sending everyone in isolated <laughs> Of just Mignoni doing his thing, just being like, oh, you've got no one around you. Yeah, have the ball. You know, nothing bad will happen. You're only running into four Argentines. It's it, You can tell that he is used to just playing with the biggest pack in the world and that yes. just being enough to kind of charge three people. And this Argentine pack were having none of it. No, no, not a single beat of it. It's fantastic. Yeah, they go in 17-9 down, them having kicked a penalty right on the stroke of half time. Yes. Which, like, very much made the scoreline look more respectable than it should have. Flat in France, big time. I think an 11-point lead is probably, if anything, slightly less than fair. Mm. Like, I think Argentina were, by such a distance, the better team. Yeah. And it's something we'll we'll touch on as we go on. But, like, the really interesting thing about this game is I was led to believe it was, like, an absolutely flawless, perfect Argentina team that turned up and were, like, heart and soul and outplayed France completely and were, like, wonderful Argentina make a lot of errors. They do, they do. Lots of handling and, errors. As I say, a couple of skew kicks. Much as we talk about France being nervous, Argentina look nervous as well. They do, And they, they make do. a few, like, nervy skill errors, odd yeah. moments of execution being off, things just not being right. And yet, there's never a moment where they look like losing this game, I think. I no. think the entire match, Argentina in complete control. France don't look like they know what a try is, never mind that they yeah. score one. The, the only point where France look like really like properly competent like contenders style thing is near the start of the second half there's this one yes. huge french mall goes from outside the 22 right up to the try line yeah exactly and then th- th- i think that's the one you were about earlier where they had the advantage yes. and then it was called over after a few pick and goes so this has one of the best moments of the game for me one of the most outstanding moments of play in the match yeah by patricia albacete massively experienced set piece operator played toulouse for about 18 thousand years yeah something like that played about 18 billion games for them because yeah eighteen thousand years should work out 18 billion games sure. the games playing top yeah, 14, yeah, yeah 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 that's more or less yeah so he sees this mall is heading towards the try line just flies straight in the side and takes out the ball carrier <laughs> just just completely illegal knows exactly what he's doing knows there's a, like a at, at best a 50 50 chance of it being a yellow card yeah yeah it's because it's the first penalty they're given away in the 22 so it's there's a chance the referee might go final warning type deal, or it might be a yellow card. He just goes, I'm cutting this off, right. this will be a try. Like, France haven't really fired a shot inside their 22, no. so it's not like you can say, like, oh, I've been doing this all game. It's like, no. oh, no, that's the first one, be very careful. And that is the first time France have got any momentum all game, and he has just illegally just gone, yeah, I'm going to kill this. There's one and you're right, that's a great the, piece of play. End of the first half, France give away a penalty in the their own 22. Yeah. Which contemplate then kicks. And... Picho points to them as they're giving it away and holds up three fingers and goes, third time, to them. And then Spreaders looks at him and kind of chuckles. And then Picho grins and goes, post, sir. Yeah, like this massive shit-eating grin on his face. It it was like he was like ordering from a restaurant, the way he, he did yeah. that. I was just like, I'll take the posts, please. If that's your special today. <laughs> He's a handsome Whereas, man, is Pichot. Yeah, that is not an option for Ibanez here. You know, he no. does, as I say, it's the first time Argentina have infringed there, and it's so cynical. Yeah. They then get up the line, you then have another Argentine. I think it sells over, I'm not 100% sure. I know it's, Le- it's, Ledesma. it's Le- Ledesma. Then flies in the side again, does exactly the same thing, stops France getting over the line. 
France then pick and go for about five or six phases. Like they have quite a sustained period of yeah of pressure. And they do it all right. They do all right. Then they go to the backs, and David Skrella goes eh? and just passes, drops it off to try. He goes, "It's my turn to give an isolated pass." And tell you what, Mario Ledesma straight in over the ball, brilliant turnover, like great form it's the hooker, fantastic by Ledesma, right? And Tony Spreadbury goes. I'm sh- I swear I called advantage over about 30 seconds ago, <laughs> which he didn't, and just gives the penalty to Argentina. It's very much the case there that France's forwards do a brilliant job and then the backs completely bungle it. Like, yep. the French, the whole French backline were completely outplayed by their opposite number. There is not yeah. one player who played better than their Argentine counterpart in that backline. I thought Damien Troy had a solid game. He was solid. But he was not better than Felipe Contepomi. No, no. Like, Aurelion Rougerie only touches the ball about twice, and he's really good when he gets it. But yeah. can you say anything for that? Exactly. You know? Exactly. And look, like, the performance of those kind of players makes you think that later in this tournament, might they bring in, like, Vincent Clare? Or maybe mm. at Fly Off, might they bring in, I don't know, um, uh, <coughs> Lionel Boxis? <laughs> Got that to look forward I loved- to. When the squad was announced, they said, of course, Lionel Boxes could cover centre in this squad, which I am very excited that to see to if that happens. Don't do that to me. But that is like an absolutely huge moment. It's the only yes. moment of French momentum in the entire match. 100%. And a combination of Mario Ledesma and Tony Spreadbury. Ended yes, up. yes. No, it feels like a, just, you know, Spreadbury's been around so long and he hates advantage as much as he does. Does Albacete know that there's a good chance if they pick and go for a while, this will be over. Yeah, I, I think he probably does. He's that kind of a smart player that he knows how to pick yeah. battles and so on. Like, like it's, he, he gets away from You're right, it's a really smart like, piece of play. Not even a penalty given for one of the most blatant yeah. try-saving penalty try borderline yellow yeah, card exactly. Amazing. Exactly. Just Brilliant absolutely amazing play. Yeah. So there's another point as well, actually, to, that goes parallel to that, where France are kind of on the edge of the 22 and they spread it throughout their back line. And Manuel Contepomi makes this brilliant, like, spot tackle. Mm. Flies up, mm. like, as the beacon, as I suppose the old term was for it in a blitz defence, and forces Josion to drop the ball. Josion being probably their most dangerous back to drop the yeah. ball. And they kept him quiet all game, Josion. Yeah. And then Borges just boots it downfield and it's just a huge momentum swinger that Borges picks the ball up and tries to offload to Felipe Contepomi and Argentina have nearly scored down the other end just because it felt like such a huge moment of oh no they've actually calculated how to get on top of the opposition's attack by getting in the faces not even just through tackling yeah 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 it's a really smart moment of D like they their defense is really great yeah like it's easy to look at how simple it is by modern standards and blah 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 but that's boring to do yeah because they are just aggressive and smart. They're never too aggressive. No one ever flies up on their own. Yeah. No one ever flies up in a way that isolates anyone else. That's a good but point. They never like leave like a dog leg. There's never a break no. made through that. They're happy to just go no. for a drift defence and just the smash only them dog that legs way. were banging on the one one door of the camper van. Yeah. So yeah, it, it as I say, a huge momentum swing. We have a moment of one of Aurelian Rougerie's two touches where he breaks them and gets them into twenty two. <laughs> which was just brilliant. absolute class and it was yeah. just him on his own like it was a 1v2 like he had two defenders in front of him he split them perfectly and just broke straight through and he was fantastic then draws his man and France somehow bungle it from there well the the thing I no, liked about this that leads to the Skrela miss penalty doesn't it yes it does it does I have written down just Skrela fuck off in like massive like <laughs> text here the thing is right what's interesting the penalty that's given away there is Lucas Ostilia, the Argentine flanker, gives mm. away a penalty by slowing the ball down with his nose. 
He had a what? massive nose and he just leant over the ball like, with his face to slow it down. Smart. Usually people use their limbs, but he just didn't roll away and just left his face lying on the floor. When the, the referee calls, like, cool. hands away, right? He doesn't say anything about noses. Exactly. He doesn't nose away, does he? Exactly. And clearly he must he have had, like, he. vacuum power nostrils to just keep the ball, like, in his face by sucking it up. It was really quite inspired. Clearly that's why he's a seven, because he's got such a powerful nose. Yeah. Like, uh, it's sure. like having a dog on the field again. It's amazing stuff. Yeah, Skrullov then missed the penalty in front of the post. He does. And a few minutes later, goes down injured, and the entirety of France go, thank God. Yeah. And then they see it's Michelin warming up and go, oh no. Oh. Like, what an emotional swing that is. The thing is, right, on the sideline, they must have been saying to Freddie Michelin, right, now's your time to make an impact. And bloody hell, you wouldn't notice there was a change, mate. <laughs> Again, he's warming up for a long time and the cameras keep cutting back to him. Mm. France bring on, who I think ends up being the best player in the game, Sebastian Chabal, who makes an immediate and excellent impact. Like, he is constantly charging, he is constantly physical, he is right up in Argentina's faces. He saw what their pack was doing to the French pack in terms of just how they were getting in amongst it and they were being in every run yeah. and they were carrying hard and they were just being about there and working hard and being so passionate and fired up. And he's the only French player across mm. the entire team, the 922 squad, that looks like he's got that about him. And I think he is like easily France's best player, makes a huge impact. Uh, and if they had like three more of him to come on, they could have swung mm. this game. Additionally, like it was a great call to put him on when they did, just as the crowd yeah, yeah. went flat. Because regardless of what you think of Chabelle as a player, like he's a huge figure. And putting yes. him on at that point will pick up the crowd. Yeah, he was and the face of the he world. He certainly Cup. did. Like the first thing he did when he came on was he got the ball and he ignored a four man overlap and just ran into Manuel Contopomi, who did a brilliant job to get him to ground. Mm. And the commentators slightly lost their shit about the fact that he ignored that overlap, and rightfully so. But other than that, you're right, he was fantastic. He carried the ball really well. Whenever he went on his own, he knew to stay on his feet long enough to wait for his support to arrive, which is mm. a fantastic skill, and he's a really strong player. Because he was like he was more iconic than he was great. Yes. You know? He became well known for how he looked as yeah. much as how he played, definitely, if definitely. not more than. But this is one of those games where you went like, oh no, actually, this is like a this is a player who's deserving of the. There level is something good to him. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. maybe the best game I've seen him play. Mm. And I know I missed large chunks of his career. I never saw him play for sale Certainly. or anything. But you can appreciate some of the stuff he does a little bit more. But yeah, I saw a lot of his. I saw most of his games after this point. You know, after this, but I realized that was now at the tail end of his career. Yeah. And yeah, he was fantastic. I thought he was really great. Off the he match. was good off the match. Really, it's interesting the thing you say about as well about the cameras constantly cutting over to him. So. As soon as Freddie Michelac comes on the field, the cameras are just like frantically, like every 20 seconds, just cutting to Ellis Sald on the bench. Clearly just trying to nudge Laporte of just like, get him on. He's the only sensible halfback we have in our squad. Get him on. Because like they knew Michelac wasn't doing the job. And so the cameras were just constantly going to Ellis Sald of like, can we please have someone on who knows what rugby is? And then eventually they do bring him on. It's like, oh, thank God. And like Ellis Sard plays like, eight minutes and it's in the conversation for the best player on the french team well yeah i mean it's just it's a short competition isn't it but again it's like the bar was so low with the halfbacks they had him on for the whole rest of the game somebody yes. who looks like again that he's seen rugby before and like there's there's a point where michelak misses a penalty quite horribly and they just go like right okay we'll just bring him on now and they break that glass in case of michelak speaking of people that look like they've never seen rugby before damian try we talked about Mignoni's attempt at ruck earlier, right? Yes. There's a great bit where France have cleared out the ball and tries done that thing that happens where like a back runs in and it's like, oh, the ruck's already been won, but I've come in now. Mm. So I'm going to need to look like I'm contributing because the scrum yes. here as well. So what he does 
is he sees one of the Argentine forwards, I think it might be Ostega, lying on the floor. And instead of like going in and standing over the ruck or doing that little like guard thing mm. where you put the arm in and you pretend you're on engaged or whatever, right? <laughs> what <laughs> Try does is he runs over and sees the Argentine on the floor and just does like a Mario ground pound on him. <laughs> like he jumps up and does like leap bottom first straight onto him <laughs> and just sits on him for a moment. I missed that. That's incredible. Did it make the sound effect as well? Woohoo! <laughs> Damien tried. I did think I heard that on the ref mic. I assumed it was Pichot. Yeah, it's the weird one where no one knew this because, you know, he speaks French. But actually, Damien Try speaks the voice of Chris Pratt. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Chris Pratt as Damien Try feels like the next thing on his agenda. <laughs> it's the one pl- person he's not played yet. In his effort to take off every voice role. Also, so there's a point. This happened a while back from where we are, but Hernandez shanks another drop goal, which is like charged down a little bit, mm. and it falls into the hands of Corletto, who also then just tries to drop goal just for, for banter, and it goes closer to the touchline than it already was. Really quite fantastic stuff. Corletto also makes a brilliant break. He does. Like, just absolutely out of nowhere, gets on the outside, throws what could have been the try scoring pass to Contopomi, but he drops it. Yeah. You don't blame either party for that one because you no, just know no. if you make enough of those breaks, one of them will eventually stick. And it's like, it's a, one of those passes that comes last second and Contopomi doesn't have time to adjust to catching him with how close he is. Yes. But like, oh, it's a real what could have been moment. Yeah. Two observations. One of them, Aaron Ordick is wearing gardening gloves. Like, I'm certain of it. It looks like he is anyway. He's wearing like full, like not even fingerless gloves, like full, like gloves with the fingers on them and they're like bright fluorescent green and they look like nice. gardening gloves very practical yeah other observation Jacques Brunel's on the sideline ah like stood with like the fourth officials and stuff and clearly he's like Wait. as a like a water boy or something was he the French attack coach that you impersonated no sorry you got the recording off maybe Wait, what do you mean impersonated? It might have been, it might have been, but Jacques Brunel has not aged a day since 2007. No, he hasn't aged, he's probably one of those guys that looked that when he was 30. Either that, or there was another guy who just looked like Jacques Brunel does now at that time, which is very possible it was France. I'll tell you what, Jacques Brunel was indeed the forwards coach of France at the time. <laughs> Was. How was Jacques Brunel the forwards coach when in his playing career he was a fullback? The thing what is, what is going on? That's not the first, that's not the last time that's happened because that happened in the Santandre era as well. I can't remember mm. who it was, but he also hired a fullback to be their their scrum coach. He was a fullback who retired in 1988. <laughs> he was, and they brought him in in the noughties in the professional era to coach the forwards. That's phenomenal. No wonder they were so bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No wonder somebody said to the forwards, you have to offload everything. You'll have yeah. loads of space, lads. That ha- well, that's what happened in my playing career. I remember nobody being anywhere near me. It Always was a non-tackling a fullback who played in the Pro Day Dirt. In- you played in the Pro Day Dirt in the 80s. That's hilarious. Like, imagine, the- to be fair, like, the Pro Day Dirt in the 80s must be more violent and physical than playing in the second row in this era. Yeah, I was going to say, he would have had his lights punched out enough times that he thought he was playing in the forwards, so... Yeah. Fair enough. Well, you would wouldn't play fullback, wouldn't you? Because then you're the furthest away from every fight that's happening. Yeah, fights are optional at fullback. That's the yeah. one position where you got a freebie. you got a choice. In the Pro Day Dirt, every team has the 99 call. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And they call it off every scrum. It's besides the first phase move <laughs> in the Pro Day Dirt. <laughs> 
<laughs> you've got free phase 99. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> first, Crash second that first phase, work round the corner, and then twat your opposite man. Oh, no, 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 no. First phase, 12 runs of crash ball, everyone punches them, the breakdown happens. Second phase, 8 runs of crash ball, everyone punches them, the breakdown happens. Third phase, spread it to the wing. <laughs> if we don't score, everyone lamps third, third phase, forget about the ball, just go for the man. Just forget, <laughs> that's what, forget we're playing a game, okay? Just make sure you've got a hit in already. So, are we going to talk about the best moment of the game now? Go on. Best moment of the game, right? Shortly after that, Contopomi, Coletto drop. Mm-hmm. France kick the ball because they're finally catching on. That's what's winning Argentina yeah, yeah. in the game. Literally, when Lassard comes on, they, the commentator says, France are going to bring on the man that can kick. <laughs> they then have a loose passage, which is unlike them, in which the ball goes to the floor. <laughs> yeah. Argentina recover it. They pop it up to whoever, the Mario Ledesma, the hooker. We are now past the hour mark. We're at about 65 minutes. Ledesma looks up and puts in the most beautiful grubber of the entire game. Like, maybe the best kick of a match that was dominated, won entirely by one team kicking better than the other. Yeah. Maybe the best kick comes from a hooker in the 65th it's minute. It's so clever. It's off turnover ball, which yeah. means that France was still disorganised and he just capitalises on that. And of course, we covered in the previous episode about who was in the stadium. And I can only mm. imagine at this point, Mario Ledesma, knowing about this, just turned to the sideline and shoved his middle finger up to Keith Wood. <laughs> but I am the as king he now should. as he of should kicking hookers because that was pure Keith Wood yeah that kick. oh it's better than Keith Wood like it was it wasn't an attacking kick it was a smart tactical yes. kick yes like that was what made it so impressive yeah it was amazing brilliant it was brilliant and the Gizamon tries one later on it doesn't quite work the same no but it was but, alright you know bless him for trying yeah absolutely but th- yeah so we get to sort of the last 10 minutes and just Hernandez's game management is just fantastic mm. I have written down this is some really good 2007 rugby by Argentina that they were rumbling everything is. up to just really slow everything down knowing that France weren't going to attack them back yeah 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 as I said them going for the corners constantly them kind of pinging those kicks across well they're only making sort of 15-20 metres mm. at a time but it's enough because they're Forcing France to exit. The chase was good enough. time off the clock. Yeah. Yeah. We see the last like 12 minutes. Argentina on about 68 minutes just start going down and taking time for everything. Yeah. And from there on out, the rest of the game is largely Argentines lying on the floor and checking whether Spreadbury's called time off yet. And a few times he has, but like there's so many Argentines going down with cramp in these last 10 minutes and they keep getting away with it. In the last five minutes, Contepomi misses a drop goal and two penalties. Like, yeah. that's how in control they are, even though they're not even scoring points. Like, they're finding it so easy to manipulate positions where they can go for them. His drop goal barely leaves the floor. France then try running it out, offload everything. Argentina steal it. Penalty. Felipe misses. Amon runs it back out. Try offloading everything. Penalty. Felipe misses. It's and so easy for them at the end. As I say, even when Assad comes on and they've suddenly got someone who can kick and give them a bit of shape and they look far better. It's too late, it's like, isn't it? As- as El Assad comes on, the commentator very optimistically says, this is Pierre Mignoni's first World Cup. <laughs> yeah, he's going to fall below Jean-Marc Dusan in the pecking order by 2011. <laughs> and he won't even have caps by then. Hernandez just hangs a handful of like really brilliant bombs. Yeah. As I say, he misses another drop goal himself after Contepomi missing another one. Yeah. And they're just like, they are running the clock down so well. Yeah. So being a nuisance and wins that turnover. Yeah. Like... like Dominici makes a nice half break, but over than that, France don't really get on top yeah. once at all in those last 15 minutes. When the full-time whistle goes, there's just kind of this sense of inevitability of like, well, that was always going to happen. Argentina yeah. were always going to win that game because it was essentially quite one-sided. Oh, I mean, there's a few moments in the last few minutes before we get there. Yeah. So there's 
I think shortly after the Dominici break mm. and like France have a moment of looking that they could score a try. They don't look that they can score a try, but they're in a 22. Yeah. And Mario Ledesma just reaches into the ruck, like knocks the ball out and then kicks it forwards mm. and like completely disrupts everything. France panic and run backwards. They win a penalty off the back of it. Brilliant moment of disruption by Ledesma. All entirely illegal, like a thousand percent illegal, but he gets away with it, yep. which is the thing that matters. Yep. Like Cedric Haymans makes a break, Ledesma gets in again, disrupts the ruck, gets on top. Fantastic. France have that seven-man overlap. Oh no, it's all forwards <laughs> who just do like a like a free Stooges routine and all fall over. Michelac is bizarre when he comes on. No idea what he's trying to accomplish, but at least it looks like he's trying to accomplish something. Unlike yeah. Skrella, who was just dog shit. Like Skrella, the only thing he had in his head is, is this going to work? No. Whereas Michelac at least had like a plan that wasn't going to work nonetheless, but at least he tried. <laughs> it was really odd. And yeah, it leads to, in the 79th minute, Argentina get a penalty 40 metres out, all off the back of this kind of varying work. And then, my favourite thing about this is, as I say, with about 40 seconds left on the clock, Ledesma glances up, looks at the scoreboard, and then has this massive shit-eating grin spread across his face. <laughs> and he starts pointing at the post. Yes, yes. And he's like, we can deny them the losing bonus point here, yeah. lads. Let's do it. And like, he clearly has the sense of humor of like, oh, mate, we're playing them away in the opening round of the World Cup. This couldn't have gone better for us. Like, we can piss so many people off here. And they clearly loved it, again, when the final whistle yeah. went. The fact that they were like, like jumping around and everything, like... There's such a different vibe to Ledesma on the final whistle. He falls to his knees and is like really emotional mm. versus when that penalty is given with one minute to go. When he's like, this would be hilarious if they get no <laughs> points out of this. This would be so funny. It's incredibly different vibes, but I love them both. So Argentina win the game, obviously, at full time. Yes. And there's this great moment of Augustin Pichot starts celebrating and dribbles down himself. Did you see that? No. He started dribbling down. There's a massive like clump of dribble on his on his chin. And I tell you what, Pichot was always destined to go on to do what he did. He was still like a control freak in the celebrations. Yes. Yeah, bringing everyone in, making sure they're contr- celebrating at the same place. Yeah. You know, shouting at Talking everyone. Talking to like so the backroom management in. and stuff about how they're celebrating. It's mental. But I love the guy. Or maybe he was narrating a doc- nature documentary during the game. You know, how to get those extra quid in. Yeah, maybe he was. Great shot of Imanella and Ordeke's face after the final whistle, where he had a look of, huh, on his face. <laughs> Didn't see that one like, coming. It's just a big, like, what just happened? <laughs> like, he's only just realised the result. <laughs> like, never mind the fact they were terrible for 80 minutes. Like, absolutely dog shit for 80 minutes. Fair play. That was that a sporting episode. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. Oh. It's like he's just seen the result on his phone. Yeah. <laughs> and he's gone, oh, that's a surprise. one. Oh, oh, I played 80 minutes as well. Wow. There's also a bit where they cut to Hernandez on the pitch, like a couple minutes after full time. And he is kissing a baby and then him and the baby walking opposite directions. Yep. <laughs> Not the baby doesn't walk in opposite directions. <laughs> Whoever's carrying the baby. Walk- yep. It's the boss baby. Hernandez and the boss baby are firm business pals going back a long, long way. So, should we look hmm. at Man of the Match and Dick of the Day? We should, yes. Do you want to start with Man of the Match? Sure. So, one guy I think was really in contention was Augustin Pichot. I think yes. he controlled everything. Great captain, clearly. Really, really led well. I think he was equally good at managing a pack and a backline, which is a good value to have in a scrum half at a World Cup. At half-time, I thought Pichot had it sewn up, man of the match. Yeah. I thought he was the best player on the but, pitch by a distance in the first half. But I think, as we went into the second half, that changed for me. Ultimately, my man of the match is, I believe, the hype. Juan Martín Hernández. Oh! I think he did a lot of dumb shit, right? But 
it was compounded by so many brilliant kicks and such mm. clearly belief in his game plan, which ultimately won them the game. So my man of the match is Juan Martin Hernandez at 10. Absolutely. I can't argue with that too much. But for me, as I said, it was kind of Gus Pichot for a long time. And then I started to realise as it went on, more and more, it felt very obvious to me that the man of the match was Mario Ledesma. Ah, okay. I think no arguments here. Moments in which momentum swings in quite a few cases are Ledesma. Like, obviously, the kicking is what kept Argentina on top throughout yeah. the game, kind of kept the pressure on. Like, there were two attacks where France looked like they're going to score. Both of them, it's Ledesma that wins a turnover. And one case, he clears the ball as well. He puts in that brilliant kick off a turnover from France. He is constantly just a menace. His yeah. work rate is amazing. He is just absolutely everywhere. He plays 80 minutes, which for a hooker is very impressive. And he's still making key tackles leading to turnovers in the 80th minute. Yeah. Like, he was absolutely everywhere. The scrum got better as the game went on. He wins a couple of scrum penalties from that as well. Just, for me, Mario Ledesma is like an almost borderline, especially in the second half, for a hooker playing his second half. Almost borderline perfect hooker performance for me. So Mario Ledesma is that. my man of the match. It's a brilliant selection. It's a brilliant selection. Thank you. Yours was good as well. <laughs> Rugby values. It's great. So dick of the day. I think this is a two-horse race, and I'm excited to see which way we go. So one of them, as I say, Pichot dribbled down himself at full time. That gets you in the books. Another one yep. is Imanol Aaron Aldeke. Mm-hmm. Drops the ball under pressure from Juan Martin Hernandez. So he's under pressure from a 10 and he shits himself and drops a high ball. Dick of the day in something that is so predictable for anybody who's listened to me talk for any length of time in this game is David Scrella for the fact that he doesn't know how to kick a ball. He missed that penalty between the posts and he enraged me to a point of texting Rihanna Garth Jones about how much I disliked him. Just thinking like, yeah, you're going to you're going to agree with me on this one. So David Scrella has to be my dick of the day. So... I think Bernard Laporte deserves an nomination. Oh yes, he didn't bring on Thierry Doucetois. For not bringing on Thierry Doucetois, as well as being in charge of that shit. <laughs> yeah, right. However, you kind of can't really look beyond... I mean, Remy Martin as well for that interception pass, yeah, which is so stupid. Pretty dumb. Uh, and that being the most notable moment of him in the game. Mm, yes. Anonymous other than one of the dumbest moments of this World Cup that we'll go on to see. Very early on as well. But for me, there are only two contenders for Dick of the Day. David Skrella and Pierre Mignoni. <laughs> and just as well France had them steering the ship because, cool, things could have been really bad if they had anyone else in. See, David Skrella has two really clear dick of the day moments where he misses two different types of kick. Mm. You know, one where he misses a kick in front of the post and the other one where he misses the ball <laughs> when trying to kick it. However, for me, so much of the French, what went wrong with France was down to Pierre Mignoni just being asleep. <laughs> just like completely like when if he was given five options he would take the worst one every single time for the entire match and for me like that trumps a few really bad moments which is what Skrella had yeah like okay for me Mignoni was just like minute to minute like if Ledesma's like a perfect hooker performance this is like exactly what you don't want to do as a scrum art sorry I'm getting extreme flashbacks to Anthony Fayenga <laughs> I feel like he's gonna get dig of the day every French game well, that's the other contender for Dick of the Day, right? Is Sir Clive Woodward. Yeah, it's true. We're two hours into this episode, or thereabouts, pre-edit. Yes. Hell of an opening game for the World Cup. First yeah. time it's been like a big upset and the away team winning the opening game. You rarely see that happen. As you rarely see it coming. Picho says after the match, you know, I've played in three opening matches now. First time I've won one. I really didn't want to retire without winning one mm, of these games. Yes. And he did it. He did it. He created the biggest moment in the history of Argentine rugby up until this point. 100%. And what he had to say for it is, we exist. 
Yes, which is good to know. It is good to know. It is good to know. A point he's very much kept fighting since, that Argentina does exist. It does exist. And is not a made-up country like Turkey. No, they're real. So please join us next week when the game next week, the second game of the competition, second game we'll be covering in the third episode, will be Italy against New Zealand. Yes. Now, they pulled off a famous draw in 2019. Can they repeat it 12 years earlier? That's how time works. Please join us next week for Italy against New Zealand. In the meantime, Mr. William Reese owen do you have anything you want to add? But first, here's a statement about rugby values. <laughs> Shut up. Rugby values, theatre. I love theatre. I love when the curtain comes down and when it goes back up again. And in the middle, I love when people talk. Do you have anything else to add? We'll see you next week for New Zealand Italy unless we see you for Australia and Japan. That's very true. <laughs> All right. We'll see you then anyway. Thank you very much. Good night. Bye, Scrella. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.